I think it's just like a fucking terrible music choice. I can't stand that song anymore. I know. Anytime people are having fun in a movie, the fucking rascals have to start playing. Another bonus edition of Directors Club featuring myself, Jim Laskowski, and the one, the only. Patrick Rapol. Hi. Uh, hi. How's it going, Jim? Hi, Patrick. I thought you were going to. I thought I. Okay. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. Back. It's fun to be here. It's fun to be here as a guest and have no investment. I don't know the numbers. <laughs> I don't got to know. You can just throw caution to the wind That's completely. Right. Like, you That's can right. say anything. That it doesn't matter. The best part about having You can do this podcast naked at this point. It doesn't matter. Well, I am. I have my shirt off at this point, but that's just because it's fucking hot in here, and I don't have air conditioning. And you just want to give the, the guy in the alley uh, across the street something to look at. Do you see him? Is he out there again? Yeah, he's right there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why is he always there? Because he's a smoker, and he can't smoke in his apartment. But... But he must creepy. be a chain smoker. Yeah, at this point, he just stands out there the at whole all day. times. It's very weird. Um, but no, my favorite thing about having a podcast back when I had a podcast was that I got to guest on other podcasts and not have to worry about anything. And that was the best. So I'm having a ball right now. I do like that. Uh, I do like guesting on other podcasts. I'm actually going to be guesting on the matinee cast, which um, you know it, it's it's a really good show. Is that uh, Ryan from McNeil, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryan McNeil, who was on for our Michelle Gondry episode, invited right. me on to review Inside Out, nice which I loved. Yeah, I heard nothing but good things. Pete mm-hmm. Doctor is a good director. Yeah, so. yeah, it's it's great. It's really great. Um, let's catch up a little bit here. Uh, anything going on in your life? No, uh, uh, my life is empty. I've emptied it. I am. Uh, so I'm not doing the podcast anymore, and you would think, oh, yeah, I felt it was something else, but I didn't. I, as a matter of fact... You were doing, like, a game thing, though. What? You were doing... I am. I am. I'm working on it now, but the problem is I have a whole other... I don't want to talk about the video game, I'm, the computer game I'm making, because okay. it's, it's it's odd, and it's weird, it's and it's... Hush. It's Well, yeah. Well, it's also just, like, I'm working with a whole other system I've never worked with before, and it's getting a little confusing, so... Um, and also, it's hard to write 20 songs. Because <laughs> I was working on a game where, at the end of it, you get to pick three out of six chords, and then whatever three chords you pick, then a song is written with those three chords. And turns out, three, three of six, there's 20 different possible combinations, which means I need to write 20 songs. What was the uh, three chords that you told me were impossible to write to Oh, again? my God. The, you, can't do a, you can't do a song with F sharp minor, F, and E minor. Okay. Those are really, really bad chords to do. I wanted to get that on record so I can go home and try. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you should. It's hard. I've figured out a thing that's like, do it really weird and punky and like, get yeah, a thing weird. At any rate, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm not really on Twitter anymore. I don't have contact with other people. My life is empty and it's great. But you it. feel free. <laughs> I kind of do. Yeah. I kind of do. Um, you know, I'm watching just as movie, many movies as ever it's just this time they're you know movies i get to choose and i'm uh i'm uh, working and uh, I'm you work full time now right mhm that's mm-hmm. great cuz you uh, work full time at a video store which is you know a dream job for many of our listeners well, I, that's a, I, it's I'm a sure. dream job for me 
I mean, honestly, I'm not someone who needs a lot of money. I just need to make rent and the bills, and then I can, you know, eat ramen or whatever. But or sausages. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've, if I if I had to say what one of what like my vocation is as a human being, I probably should either be running a video store or running a rep theater. Unfortunately, both those things require insane amount of business sense to even keep open. So those are just things I missed out on. But um, I'm having a good time. Yeah, I often feel we were born in the wrong decades. What decade? <laughs> I like that because that implies that we were both born in the wrong decade, but that we were, but that the decades we should have been born in are different. So now I want to hear from, from <laughs> you what decade I should have been born in and what decade you should have been born in. Well, whatever decades the th- video stores thrived in that we can, you know, work in together that they actually could. So if we were born potentially in the, succeed, if we were born in the late sixties. Then we would yeah. be in our 20s in the 80s when video stores start to rise. Right, right. And we could have met, mm-hmm. hypothetically, started a video store. Yeah, called Blockbuster. Called Blockbuster. Start a chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, franchise. We know what we're doing once we invent the time machine. <laughs> yeah, and it's true. Once you invent the time <laughs> machine, um, you have the benefit of hindsight. You can yep. start. I mean, at the very least, we can fund all of this with our Super Bowl winnings. <laughs> with, uh, with, all the, yeah, with the sports with, almanac. With our sports almanac. That's right. Yeah. When I was a kid, I didn't understand that he read the sports almanac and saw the winner. I thought that the <laughs> sports almanac was a magic book that if you held it, whatever you guessed, <laughs> whatever you said about a sports, uh, whatever you said about a, a sporting event happened. I didn't, I was, I was dumb. I was a dumb child. We all were. Hey, Jim. Hey, Patrick. Can you tell me what this episode is about? I want to hear you explain it in your own words. It's really simple. It's just movies that I didn't really appreciate on a first viewing. I Maybe were, they were like a B, B minus, and now they're at like an A, A minus. Like they were movies I thought, huh, okay. they were okay, nothing great. Mm-hmm. I walked out of them on a first viewing and just thought, oh, they were uh, maybe, a, you know, kind of maybe mediocre, okay at best. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a second or third viewing, I've I've grown to love them yeah. very much. Um, you know, the we're going to talk about two odd films, very yeah. very odd. That is very accurate. Uh, Joe versus the volcano and the master. Yeah, we saw the master together, and I think That's we true. had a we, we we both sort of experienced. I don't know, like a. I don't know how like I think I think we had a shared experience with almost everybody who saw it the first time. Yeah, we walked out of the theater going, hmm? yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to be to be completely fair to the master, even though right now I still kind of feel like eh, about the master, but like to be completely fair to the master, we saw it a in seventy millimeter, which means you know it's one of the most gorgeous movies of the past decade. It's it's insane. It's insanely good looking. Um, and when you see that in old. Um, movie Palace movie theater in 70 millimeter. It's overwhelming. So we walked out of there feeling like, oh, that was something. But it's also the most confusing movie Paul Thomas Anderson has ever made. So we walked out of there going, eh, that was something. I don't know what it was, but that was something. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have Joaquin's per- Joaquin Phoenix's performance where he's talking out the side of his mouth the whole time, and the acoustics of the music box in which. Um, not not exactly uh, state of the art uh, sound in there um, because the only no, downside of seeing a movie yeah because it's a movie palace that was sort of designed for mono films you know uh, the sound echoes a lot and 
for that one, like, so I watched The Master again for this podcast, and I didn't even know what was said in the last scene of The Master until I watched it again on Blu-ray with the subtitles on. I do that a lot now with movies, and yeah. it's not because I'm like I'm hard of hearing. I just I want to make sure I know exactly what they're saying. Yeah, I'm hard. Of, <laughs> I am hard of hearing, and so that's a regular tradition for me. Um, that would actually be we're going to try to see the uh, 4K restoration of uh, of the Third Man because you've never seen it, and I think you absolutely adore it. I have a feeling I will. The one thing about that movie is it takes place in Vienna, and there's a lot of accents, and there's a lot of unsubtitled uh, foreign language, and mm. we're probably going to end up seeing it in the music box, and it might be a little hard to figure out, so I'll give you that warning. I can tell you right about now that I'm, I've, I've said a prayer every single night before I go to bed, even though I question whether God is up there or not. Um, I'm hoping that we get to see uh, The Hateful Eight. At the music box in Glorious 40. Oh, I don't know if it's going to play at the music box. I've heard rumors. Oh, really? Well, I mean, Quentin Tarantino is sort of uh, advocating for all the theaters that can show 40 millimeter uh, projectors. You mean 70 millimeter? Oh, 70 millimeter. I'm sorry, yeah. 70 millimeter, uh-huh. yeah. So, you know what happened with the master? That's true. I, so, I didn't know that he was shooting it in 70 millimeter. He is, and he's already. You know, put, uh, put out like a whole press release is that he's looking for theaters to show it. Like uh, I guess a week early before right, its we'll, official release we'll, date. Let's keep our because what you know we we have about a tradition. This. We have a tradition of yeah. seeing every Tarantino movie together. Every Tarantino movie since Inglorious Bastards we've watched together. So we've seen two Tarantino movies. <laughs> yeah, <together. laughs> but, but no, no, I agree. Yeah. If, if it plays in seventy millimeter at the music box, we should go the extra mile to make sure we get to see it together. That oh yeah. So, The Master, yeah, we both walked out sort of similar thing. It's a befuddling, but also it just pounds you in the face with beauty. And Joaquin Phoenix's performance is so unbelievable. So I saw someone describe it as, I was, I was reading different reviews of it and stuff. I saw someone describe it as like pushing the bounds of what acting even is. And I, it's so, such an unbelievable physical performance. The Master is definitely a movie that we were like, that was Something. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we can just go ahead and almost get into it because I was thinking, well, maybe we should just go in chronological order, but I, I think since we're essentially talking about it, we can go in right into our Well, this is take. autobiographical order, isn't it? Cause you autobiographical? Well, because you didn't get into Joe versus the Volcano, which is our other film we're talking about. Uh, yeah, I think until after I watched it at Collins. Yeah. Yeah. So that and that that makes sense. So, um, let's and, let's let's put a pin in Joe versus the volcano. Um, all, so is this a thing that happens with you often? I, I do want to ask, like, um, like sort of seeing a movie again and sort of reevaluating and realizing, like, oh, that movie's way better than I gave it credit for, or oh, that movie's not nearly as good as I thought it was. Yeah, I mean, I think it all depends on the 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 time in between rewatches, really. Like, you know. I, I like I should have jotted down some specific examples of movies where this has happened. Where a few years later I watch it and I have a completely different feeling either way. Like I feel do you like, feel that because so I started getting into movies way later than you did. It went not just later chronologically, but later in life. Um, and so my experience with like seriously watching movies and being interested in film history and having uh, and sort of dedicating myself and my life to to film like that's a much shorter thing for me so 
in I there's so many great movies that I've only just seen in the past three years that I feel like my perception of things is constantly changing. Do you feel that's this really the same true. for you, or has it sort of flattened out for you since it's been? I like, would, has doing the podcast made you look at movies significantly differently? Um, yeah. Well, like, I mean, tell me about the arc of <laughs> your appreciation. <laughs> I guess. Really, it starts off with you know seeing Pulp Fiction and having this epiphany that movies are more than just like I want to go and be in and entertained. I but I was like, this is how a movie can be deconstructed right before my eyes. Yeah, like, I can see how the storyteller chose to tell it this certain way and why he chose it to mm-hmm. tell it this way. As I'm watching the movie, I'm having these conscious thoughts of like, this is a movie told this way. Yeah. Which was something I'd never experienced before. And this was like, what, age 16, 17? Sure. So, and those are formative years where you're just forming your identity and figuring Absolutely. out what you're into. Um, and like, even at the time, right after Pulp Fiction, I rented Reservoir Dogs, and I was like, this movie's a masterpiece because it's something, something I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen a story told this way before. But as we've gone on to do the podcast, like, there are so many other movies... That so were you mostly before the podcast? Were you mostly interested in just like what was in theaters right then? Were you not yeah. as interested in film history as you were after doing the podcast? I would say that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I would mean, say the same for me. I was just always like, oh, what's the new release? Got to go see it. You know, yeah. what, with my friends. Or yeah, well, whatever. it's exciting to be part of the conversation. Yeah, you want it's like the version of water cooler talk. Only it's in the locker. Well, not the locker room. <laughs> um, the 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 locker hallway area <laughs> or whatever. The, the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> the cafeteria. We fucking talk to the gym. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the commons. The commons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The quad. Um, but yeah, it's just you know, high school was a different time in terms of how I digested movies. It was really just like, let's see as much as it was. It was more quantity over mm-hmm. quality. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, spending nights watching movies, and even if they were schlocky B horror movies. It was it was more just for fun and pleasure, and um, then at Purdue, when I went there briefly for English, um, I took a film class, and that's where they showed like uh, Mildred Pierce and the um, Winnell film, you know, with the slicing of the eyeball. Yes, and like those were things that kind of blew my mind in terms of. I'd never seen anything like this before, and we can talk about it. We, you know, like a professor's like, tell me what you think about it. And she was the type that would call on you at random, which I hated and caused anxiety. But at the same time, I was like, this is a class where I'm not freaking out about it as much because I feel like I'm excited to talk about film. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would come up with ideas. And certainly after seeing Blue Velvet in a film class, that really had an effect on me. And it made me excited to talk about movies even though my girlfriend wasn't as excited to talk about sure, movies sure. as I was. But, like, I found many more like-minded people working in a video store. Uh-huh. And that's kind of like, I decided, I'm going to watch Kislowski films because people are talking about these Three Colors trilogy so much. Um, yeah. It is, it, is a, it is that conscious of a choice, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It really is. You just sort of say to yourself, I'm going to be the guy. Yeah. I see people who are the guy, and I want to be that guy, so I'm going to be the guy. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, there was this customer that came in, and, you know, we stroke up, we, you know, just had a conversation about House of Games, and how, like, I thought, this was just a great screenplay, I wish I could write like this, and blah, 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 and then, you know, the next thing you know, he brought in a screenplay that he wrote, and we're, like, <laughs> we're, like you know, critiquing it together, and then I was like, I should write a screenplay, you know, it's like, yeah. 
it becomes this really interactive thing that sort of like you know um led to what podcasting has become where it's like having a shared conversation mm-hmm. a shared experience mm-hmm. with different people that mm-hmm. i may not ever meet in person but right. it's still great because you're like ah and that's kind of why i'm talking to with you about these two movies because we have different perspectives yeah. on both of them um because like i would say i'm more with the master i think when we've, we we walked out of, we walked out of it feeling the same what I would like to call perplexing euphoria. Yeah. Like, I, I, I feel that's euphoric. Word, right? That's a good phrase. I feel euphoric, but I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah. And to this day, I will say that as much as I love it, it's not one of my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies, and a lot of it has to do with the last act. Yeah. What's funny, so I wrote a review of The Master for Row 3. That's right. And my review of it, if you read it, it is mostly me, like, I actually had to consciously say to myself, like, all right, Eber said, if you don't know what a movie is, just describe what it does. And if you read my review of that, I had no idea what the fuck The Master was. So I just described what it did, and I was just sort of like, I don't know, I was... But my theory, too, is that Paul Thomas Anderson, I don't know if he knows. Yeah, which is... And Matt, Ga- all, I mean, Matt Gamble would say that's a bad thing, he's a yeah, bad filmmaker. I don't, think I don't think that's always a bad thing. I would, I mean... I would I would not say it's necessary for an artist to know where every part of the art they create comes from. I would say, as a matter of fact, that a lot of really great art was made by people who didn't know they were making great art. They thought they were just making a product. Like, you want to look at noir, probably they didn't realize they were capturing the anxiety of World War II and the fear of, you know, all those German cinematographers who fled uh, Nazi Germany, like... They probably just thought they were doing their jobs because that was the approach to filmmaking at the time was you just go to work. Mm-hmm. But you, you look at it and you go, oh, okay, Fritz Lang, he he may not have even realized it, but he had something to say and he was getting something out. Yeah, and every filmmaker has a different approach too and it doesn't – and Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't have to have the same approach for every movie. Right. Whereas someone like Mike Lee, I think, has a fascinating approach because mm-hmm. he's like, I just have like a like an an outline or a synopsis of what I think I want to tell, a story I want to tell, and then he gets the actors to build it with him. Mike Lee almost yeah, that feels more like the tradition of theater, like yeah, that's theater what I like companies about it. that work that way, yeah, yeah. Which you know I respect, and I think it's a really like I think Paul Thomas Anderson would benefit from that because he makes actors the priority, yeah. You know, I think. Oh, I mean, that was that was how John. Ca- I mean, that's that all come. That all goes back to John Cassavetes. When John Cassavetes yeah. made Shadows, what he said to everyone was, "Hey, we're making this all together." And basically, what happened was he made one version of Shadows that was utterly like you couldn't hear what anyone was saying, and it was just meandering and weird. But from when he screened it, from what people said, like these are the good parts. Mm-hmm. He like cut out seventy percent of it and then reshot most of it, and then that's the Shadows that we've seen and. Like, John Cassavetes comes from that sort of background because he was a theater actor, but he also wanted to shake up the system. He didn't, he didn't like, resting on his laurels. He wanted to fucking sh- grab people by the shoulders and shake them and, and like, this is real. And, and he wanted to let everyone know that anyone can act. I mean, um, Vincent Castle, who's in a lot of John Cassavetes movies. Oh, um, Cassell? Cassell. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Cassell. Seymour Cassell. Not Seymour Vincent. Cassell, yes. Not Vincent. Blah. Anyway, Seymour Cassell... Um, was a uh, he worked at like a dock, and then he saw an ad that John Cassavetes put for an acting school, and then he was in The Godfather Part Two. <laughs> like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> you know? That's crazy. Yeah, but um, 
so yeah, I definitely, despite the things I might say a little bit later about the master, I definitely don't think that not knowing where you're going with your art is a bad thing. Yeah, but again, like, here's what here's an, another reason why I would even rewatch a movie. You know, speaking of the last episode, David Cronenberg, why I would rewatch Crash maybe another couple of more times. Yeah. Because the last episode of the of this podcast, you you basically you basically spent forty five minutes talking about how frustrating it is to not like Crash when you want to. Yeah, <laughs> and I try and I watch it like, come on, let me get this. Come on, brain, work. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. not working, and all these other people are loving it, and they're people who are really smart, and I respect, and you know, I value their opinion. So what is, what is wrong? Like what, you know, and you've had that experience, I'm sure. With, Absolutely. With something like even Vertigo. Maybe. I, well, Vertigo, yeah, Vertigo for sure. Vertigo, I think I just need to watch it again. I only saw it the one time, but I did see it on film in theater and I didn't care for it. But like, you also went from rear window to Vertigo. That's true. I went from my favorite Hitchcock movie to my least favorite Hitchcock movie, <laughs> which is, which is weird. But, um, uh, Vertigo is something that I definitely feel like uh, I'm missing out on something just because once certain thing, certain something hits a critical mass, then I just sort of accept. Then it's probably a that's an MP, not a YP. That's a my problem. <laughs> Speaking with, of boogie nights, yeah, yeah. Um, but like Crash just feels like it has become like at least amongst the film critic circle that I know, yeah. it is beloved at this point and I'm trying to figure out why. Yeah, yeah. Because it's boring as fuck. But I'm like <laughs> trying to figure it out and I. Like, I'm open-minded enough to try. Uh-huh. And with the master... Well, that's one of the great things about you. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about you. Oh, Very thanks. open-minded and you want to try. Well, it's, you know, it's, sometimes it's frustrating because I'm not getting it. <laughs> and with the master, it's interesting because I would say the majority of the movie I truly, truly love. Uh-huh. And I can't find fault with it. And then it loses me and I, I, I have almost the same issue with something like Crash where I'm like... Why is this not computing right? Okay, what what so, is going on here? But because the because the topic of this podcast is films that you weren't sure what you thought at first, and then or like you were like ah it's okay, and then you went on to love. What tell me about the arc? What what is different between watching the master now and watching the master when you first saw it? Why do you like even even with this sort of reservation about the third act of the master? Why do you why do you love the master more than you did the first time you saw it? I will say that a lot of it has to do with. Expectations, like knowing what what's going to come next. Oh, sure. Because like the first time, that processing scene is, is like just a, a punch in the gut in a way that I'd never experienced before. To where almost everything else that came after it felt like a letdown, yeah. but not like in a bad way. It was just like it's so hard to come down from that moment. Like mm-hmm. emotionally, I mm-hmm. felt like wrecked, and um. I wasn't so clear on his connection with Doris the first time I saw it, and now I, I now I really identify with it to some extent. Yeah. In, in the same way with Inherent Vice, where it's really just about a guy who longs for something that he can't have. I I, I agree with that one hundred percent. I I did not I I all this stuff with Doris felt really superfluous the first time I saw it, and then rewatching it this time, it really felt vital. Yeah. Um. And whereas, like, I really went in the first time, not necessarily thinking, like, oh, it's going to be an indictment on Scientology. I was going in with the framework of, 
he is loosely basing some of his ideas from L. Ron Hubbard's life. Uh-huh. And this is kind of a critique on some Scientologist thinking. A, I would say one of my favorite things about Paul Thomas Anderson, other than the performances he gets out of actors and the fact that he makes beautiful movies, my third favorite thing about Paul Thomas Anderson is that he starts with an idea, and then, but he is only interested in the things that idea makes him think of. He feels absolutely no obligation to actually tell that story. Punch Drunk Love. He heard this story about a guy getting a unlimited like uh, frequent flyer miles from buying pudding. Mm-hmm. But like the the places that made his brain go to were so different than what you might expect that movie to be that by the end of it, it's just like oh, that's like a really small part of it. But but he, if he was another filmmaker, he'd be like, oh, what a great true story. Like, I'll do that and it'll be a fun loving, like a fun sort of family <laughs> film and about this guy who, da, da, da. like, but yeah. he is not interested in telling the truth. Like, he's very will, inter- interested in the interpersonal. There Will Be Blood is not a great treatise on, on, uh, on oil boom. It's not based on Upton Sinclair's book, yeah. really. It's more just based on what that book made him think of. And I like that he, sort of respects his own thoughts about something more than he respects the truth of something. I, I think really that's think true. that is a that is an instinct that would serve a lot of other filmmakers really well. Well, he goes for the emotional truth and that's what I respond to the most in movies in general. Yeah. That's probably why he's my favorite filmmaker, even if he perplexes me. Like mm-hmm. even the first time I saw Inherent Vice, I was like, I don't think I got this the same way yep. I didn't get the master. Yeah, yeah. Even though I was, I found it more enjoyable. I was still like, "Hmm, what was the deal with this and that, and why is Josh Brolin eating the pot?" And like, like I was, I was just having so many questions. Sure. Walking out of it, and then I don't know. Like with a second viewing, I sort of just give in and say, "You know what? Maybe I, I'm not meant to get it." Yeah. Um, whereas the master, like, I feel like there's like maybe some kind of dr- mood, moody dream logic to. You know, for, pretty much from the the theater scene on, that I'm I'm trying to figure out what oh, is when he's well, in the movie theater. Well, in the, he's in the movie theater. He's dreaming, which I didn't know. The I, the first time I saw, it, obviously, I didn't know that. I don't. He's he's a he's he's asleep. He's 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 having a dream when he's in the movie theater and the um the uh, so everything the after him talking to Doris's mom is a dream. Not everything. Um, the scene in the movie theater is a dream that he's had because he goes to, um, he goes to England to meet Lancaster and he says, I had a dream that you told me where you knew me from. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And the movie theater, so the movie theater moment is actually a dream that he had. Okay. Fair enough. If it's, if it's in the dialogue, that that's fair enough. If it's if it's from like an interview where Paul Thomas Anderson said that all's a dream, but it still loses me there because everything before it is grounded in reality. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Like, is it really just the two of them coming to terms with the fact that they can't really have a long term connection together, even though deep down, maybe on some subconscious level, they want to? Uh-huh. Because like you know, in in. <laughs> I like it on in, in Mark Maron's podcast where he says, like, that movie would have been just would have been way better if they just fucked. Like, it, it's, it could have just been a love story between Mark these two Maron guys. Said that? Yeah. Like, the, to Paul Thomas Anderson? Yeah. 
<laughs> he started laughing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does come across as a little bit of a love story between yeah. the two of them. You know. Well, I think they. I think they're definitely like. Oh, let me get in the microphone. I think they're definitely life partners. Um, so it's interesting that it's that late into them because that's really you say the third act, but that's really just like the last twelve minutes or so. Yeah, last fifty. Yeah, fifteen twenty minutes maybe. I would well, fifteen say, minutes. Yeah, you're probably right because it's only the dream sequence that you talk about. Him in England, and then him meeting the girl in the bar in England and and hooking up with her, and then yeah. that's the movie. And even the dialogue there, I'm still, what? Like he? I mean, I guess he's still utilizing what he learned from Lancaster while he's having sex, which just seemed awkward. And I don't know what it, what 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 Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to say in that moment. So what's interesting is so that's where it loses you, and that's really. Very little of the movie. You're with it for a lot of the- Yeah, and I would even say the first time I saw it, um, I, I felt a little disconnected from the moment where they start like doing these little tests on him, like the wall mm-hmm. stuff. Like It, it wasn't like... I, I just kind of felt restless. Like I was yeah. like, what is going on here? Why, why are we doing this now? And... You know why is Amy Adams reading like some erotic literature to mm-hmm. him? I mean, I'm guessing this is just Scientology like tests that they do, and I'm just not getting it. But I didn't understand what you know the purpose of that was. So, okay, so for me, um, the film starts just kind of spinning its wheels the second they get off the boat. Everything after the boat is just sort of hitting the same notes over and over and over and over again. And that's sort of what I don't like about the movie. But what's funny about uh, The Master is this time I saw the movie, I kind of actually had a working theory. And I understand, like, okay, basically, these are two people who represent very opposite sides of one person. I mean, the whatever it's called, the what's the name of the religion or whatever, the movement or the... The cause. The cause. The cause. So, like, the cause is about you are not animals. Humans are not animals. And Joaquin Phoenix is just an animal. Pure id. But the thing about... uh, But he sees the marriage, you know, he sees the wedding that's happening on the boat, and he has so much longing for that kind of stability that he can't allow himself to have just because of who he is. Um, And to me, that is, like, that's that's why all the Dora stuff is really important, because... And that's why he buys into the cause so hard, because he wants that so much for himself. He, he wants stability. Wants, he wants to the approval of this person, and he wants to be this human being and not an animal. He doesn't want to be the id, but he just kind of is the id. Um, but the problem with the rest of the movie after they get off the boat is once they establish that, none of the plot actually matters. It's just hitting that theme over and over and over again. It's just which doesn't bother me um, because yeah. the individual scenes are so strong. Sure. Like even in the jail, mm-hmm. like just those two scenes of them, two of the most amazing actors yeah. going at it, is enough to carry me through the movie. I think, but so Joaquin Phoenix is a liar in this movie. When they're first doing the processing, it's it's comical the the questions he asks him. You can t- you just know what he's lying about. Yeah, be like, do you think like a scientist? Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, fuck off. Yeah. So like, so, like, to me, they are both liars, and that's why they can sort of, metaphorically speaking, symbolically speaking, that's why they can both drink the poison, um, is because they both sort of set that poison out into the world, and they both kind of understand that they are necessary to each other, and 
Dodd, Lancaster Dodd kind of, uh, and again, this is all my interpretation. This well, is, I like it so far. So, so Lancaster Dodd sees Freddy as, look, if I can help this person, maybe I'm not like this fucking animal. <laughs> like maybe, maybe that means I'm not full of bullshit. Maybe that means I'm on something. Maybe there's a redemption there. You know, because he knows he's making it up as he goes along. Um, and to an extent, I think you could view this movie as Paul Thomas Anderson... Making it up as he goes along. Well, no, well, certainly... I mean, he definitely is. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You you are the one who told me about the interview where he said that he kind of doesn't know what everything means. And I'm, and I'm saying, like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think the... You could read this movie as... Uh, Lancaster Dodd is Paul Thomas Anderson and Joaquin Phoenix and Joaquin Phoenix and in which Paul Thomas Anderson is looking at this raw talent and saying if I can create scenes that are really emotional and really powerful and people can't explain why then maybe it's not fucking bullshit like maybe what I'm doing is valid I don't think it's maybe I think he has a lot of confidence you have to have a lot of confidence to make a fucking movie like The Master but like but I think he's proving a point, which is, like, no, this is, you, this may not all add up. This is not a fucking math equation. Mm-hmm. But I think, but, um, but if I can make, if I can move you and you can't explain why you were moved, then that proves my point, which is, it's okay that I'm making it all up as it goes along. It's okay. Like, there's a scene in this movie where literally the game is called Pick a Point, which is almost just like... Uh, it's kind of him rubbing your nose in it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not even a big fan of that sequence. Like, it's, yeah, no, that's it feels not a good superfluous. Sequence. It um, is superfluous, but like, so. Any at any rate, um, so to me, the movie is about the longing of Freddy to be more, for lack of a better word, civilized human, whatever you want to say. I mean, he's a human being. And Lancaster longing to be a little bit more like Freddy, to be uh, a little bit or more at free. Least, or at least to ground his bullshit in something real. Um, and because yeah, Freddy, Freddy is incapable of having... Like, Freddy is a liar when you talk to him, but in his actions, he's incapable of being dishonest to his mm-hmm. nature. Like, he can't do it like he can't do something that he doesn't believe in and when he does it's fucking weird like when he's on the street and he's like handing out flyers yeah like and he, he just looks like someone put a tux on an ape like it's 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 and he starts copying the other guy yeah, exactly like because he desperately wants to belong to that sort of thing and that's why he gets so frustrated when people start tearing down uh you know and then of course that <laughs> obviously that breaks it down to his analytic. so in that way i like the movie and i think the movie is coherent what I don't like about the movie is all of that that I just said is established in the opening 30 minutes with or opening 40 minutes or whatever it takes to get on the boat and for them to leave the boat. And then there's no development of that. It really is just hitting those notes again and again. For, for me, at least. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, you're right. But I think just because... Paul Thomas Anderson's a great filmmaker, and yeah. the actors are so strong that maybe that doesn't bother yeah, me no, that I'm hitting those notes over and over again. You love um, Paul Thomas Anderson more than I do, so it's... Like, unabashedly at times. Yeah, well, there's there's Robert Altman films in which, I don't know what that means, but I fucking love it. Like, or what am I going to say about Brewster McCloud other than I, it, it, it tickles me pink. I love, I love watching it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I, I had a different read. Okay. Somewhat, me, somewhat, but no, like... Ahead, it, tell me about your read. Because, like, 
I don't know how I missed this the first time we saw it, but I, maybe it's just like it just escaped my memory the way the movie opens, mm-hmm. because like I had this memory of it literally starting on him um, in like the coconut tree or whatever. Okay, like on the beach. Yeah, with all the other sailors. But the the movie opens with him getting ready to storm a beach, at, you know, yeah. presumably getting ready to go to war, and him closing his eyes, mm-hmm. and like. It seems like to me this movie is about two people who can't take reality straight. Okay. And so they try to find ways of coping with reality or at least escaping reality and for, you know, Freddy it's mostly through sex and booze and for Lancaster it's through his cause. <laughs> and then eventually because of what Freddy gives to him, it's the it's also the the booze slash poison too. Yeah. Because like I was, I was, you know, at first thinking like, okay, there's going to represent two different extremes. It's going you're going to have Lancaster sort of representing the purer side, but he gives in and sort of, you know, drinks almost as much as Freddie does once they meet. Um, and I liked, I, and I really like Amy Adams as sort of the mediator too. At one point, because she really tries to take control of both of them, yeah, almost in the same instance. Well, because she understands that it can't hold. Like you can't run a cult or yeah. whatever it is. Um, if you're acknowledging that human, that animal side of you, if like she understands that Freddy's act is an actively bad influence on what they're trying to achieve, right? And that sort of is, you know, kind she, of uh... she talks a lot about control. Like her character is almost entirely about no control, control above all else, because that's what we're going to do when we what we plan on doing. Yeah, I think it, I don't know when I said it. I must have said in the show at one time like how a very simple reading could be. One character is the id, one is the ego, one is the superego. Very simple sort of take on it. Um, And and again, like, really a crazy moment with Freddy just picturing everybody in the the room nude while Lancaster is dancing around. The second time around, I realized that that was his, that you were looking at it through his eyes. Yeah. Whereas I thought it was just a weird, like, expressionist kind of flourish. (laughs) <laughs> that he, I thought it was actually happening, and it was just kind of a surreal touch that PTA did. Yeah, but it's it is pretty clear. It's through Freddy's eyes. Yeah, and then I don't know. It's just like because I even but th- only I, the women, but only the women are naked, right? Because right. that's all. Like it's it's just sort of like, well, this is actually how he views all women. I think, like, and to some degree, that I mean, that's his that's his way of trying to escape this envy he's feeling of Lancaster because he wants that mm-hmm. connection with a room of people the way, you know, Lancaster has like control of the whole room and can mm-hmm. get this acceptance and get everybody riled up. And, uh, you know, Freddie's almost the antithesis of that. He's just like the loner who, you know, has, you know, issues connecting socially. Um, so I think he's, he's almost like, if he's looking that moment, he's like uh, growling at Lancaster and just like, I mean, he could be just, you know, drunk out of his head too at that moment, but just the way he's looking at him almost like he resents him a little bit or he wants to be him and can't. Yeah. So, well, yeah, the, the surprising thing about my second viewing was that I like it more viewing it straight as them two, like just watching it, thinking of those two as human characters more than as thinking of those two as, as metaphors for conflicting philosophies. Like, yeah. the movie feels, because it's so off-putting and so not, this happens there, like, and because it's not a traditional narrative, and because it's so tone-heavy, it's very easy to just sink into the, oh, everything in this is a metaphor. Um, 
but I actually got more out of it just looking at them as human beings than looking at them as what they represent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm not exactly clear on why Freddy, you know, in the moment where the pick a point moment, why he just decides to drive off. Is it just because he wants to go see Doris, and that's it's, that's that, or is he really like sick of Lancaster and his you know phoniness? I I, th- I just think the center can't hold. I just think they're both. I, th- I think it was just like this beautiful moment where they just sort of look at each other and realize what could have been, but cannot be. Um, yeah. And I think, I think fleeing felt good to Fred. I mean, the way I interpret it is like fleeing felt good to Freddie, and he just kept going. Right. Um, but what's funny is, the first time I saw it, and even the second time I saw it, it isn't clear whether or not they ever catch up with Freddie, or if Freddie just, or they just give up on him. Like. Hmm. The next scene is Freddy elsewhere, but it's not implied that, like, Freddy took the bike there. You know? Like, there's nothing connecting those two scenes. Like, if Paul Thomas Anderson really wanted to drive home that point, he would have shown the bike that Freddy was just on in the driveway of Doris's mom. And then to connect those two scenes. But instead, he doesn't do that. And it... It's... It's... Again, it's enigmatic to a fault. <laughs> that, what that's, that's what I mean. It's like I wish it. I wish it was more clear and less. Yeah. The whole moody dream part of that movie, because and as much as I like that, sometimes, especially with a filmmaker like Lynch, there's just there, it. There's something missing for me to fully embrace it. I I, I watched Blue Velvet uh, not too long ago, and I was struck by even though it's all dreamy. Every scene really does feel like it has a purpose. Like, there's nothing in Blue Velvet that feels like, oh yeah, screenwriting class taught David Lynch how to write Blue Velvet. Right. But Blue Velvet does feel like every scene has a purpose, and it's all building on a theme, and it's all building on these characters. That's how I felt about Blood Simple after I rewatched it. I was like, every scene is perfect. Yeah. And, and it just I belongs think that there. is, I mean, and this is something I've been saying since the Paul Thomas Anderson episode when you and Steve Procopi did not agree with me at all about Magnolia and There Will Be Blood. But I think that Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't really make movies about anything. Like, he picks a theme and he sort of gestures towards it, but he do, is not very good at exploring a the theme dramatically, um, which is what really great filmmaker or really good screenwriters or whatever you want to say i i don't feel comfortable saying he isn't a great filmmaker because he is because like you said (laughs) the individual scenes he does are so strong and so beautiful but like movies i think of like mccabe and mrs miller something like that like movies i think of that are really good at exploring a theme they explore it dramatically they explore it through the progression of the plot and you look at inherent vice you look at the master you look at there will be blood you look at magnolia that's not really the case, um, which is you know as, as a storyteller. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Which is I just can buy why that to some it's degree. not Paul Thomas Anderson. It's to me not one of the greatest. I mean, he is one of the greatest filmmakers working at all time. But I'm not on board with saying he is the greatest filmmaker working right now. But because yeah, because he doesn't know how to explore his themes dramatically. There's a. So Mike D'Angelo on his letterbox quote, or his letterbox review of The Master. Okay, he tends to identify the big themes he wants to tackle, then decline to actually tackle them. Instead, he offers what amounts to thematic signifiers, which, in conjunction with his extraordinary gifts as a pure filmmaker, needless to say, 
successfully create the illusion of depth. <laughs> and that's what I feel about the master because again, it's this is the theme, but once you get off that boat, there's no real good movement on that theme. That's what I think about Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice is funny because I lo- I really liked Inherent Vice a lot, but Inherent Vice was one of those things where I sort of felt it, and then every time there was narration that you could tell was just text from the book, you're like, oh my god, there's a level of depth here that's totally not present anywhere else in the film. I but, feel that way reading Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, like I have the I almost had to put it down for a minute too because I'm like, oh man. Yeah, this yeah. is kind of mind blowing. I don't know yeah. what to think right now. <laughs> which is which is like, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson's not as deep as Thomas Pynchon. Like, who the fuck is? You know, yeah. like, what filmmakers working today really uh, are really intellectual and and tackle themes that strongly as as some of those great novelists do? Not many. I would say maybe uh, maybe Shane Carruth uh, in Upstream Color, but that's well, he gets- one film. He gets everything right, and I don't know. Like Upstream Color to me is still an enigma that imagines that magically gets everything correct. Yeah, in every way. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, almost in the same way, like David Wayne manages to tap into my sense of humor in a way I can't <laughs> comprehend. Like everything I find, I find everything he does funny. Like yeah. almost every movie I think is great. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's movies hit me on an emotional level, almost every single one. Yeah, and I can't really figure out why. And I think it over, like that emotional response overrides criticism as a storyteller. Yeah. Like I can totally buy into so, like someone like Matt Gamble hating him as a storyteller. Uh-huh. I'm glad you're not that extreme, like no, to no, the no, point no. of hate. <laughs> He's but, too good a director to hate. Like, so I, I can. That's why it's like I, really if, hard if to anything, argue. If anything, his talents as a director make me more frustrated. Like I don't hate his movies, but I get so frustrated with them because he's so good. It's like, if he could just write with someone else, if he could just bounce ideas off someone else who would say, all right, you're, look, this is what the story is actually about. You don't need this. We could develop this more. Like, if he would just collaborate, but he's, he's PTA, he's fucking untouchable. He doesn't need to collaborate with anyone. And therefore, I He did with Thomas, Thomas Pynchon in a way, which that's why I think it could be his... I hate to say this right at this point, uh-huh. but at least in my mind right now, it's probably my second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie because it's probably the most fun um, after advice. after Punch Drunk Love. Well, that was funny. That was the that was one of my favorite things about Cronenberg, the Cronenberg Part Two episode you did <laughs> was you were talking about liking the um, fly, not necessarily the fly. You were you talked a lot about um, uh, existence. existence, yeah, and you said. And the thing you said about it is like one of the reasons one of my favorites is because it's fun, and and that was hilarious to me. One because I mean it's very it's very you, but also it just like it's like man a, a fan of David Cronenberg who likes him when he's fun like <laughs> that is such a rare event. You know, but then again, I also like Spider and Dead Ringers. You know? I know, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like uh, Spider, Dead Ringers, like. Even The Fly is just a really good alchemical kind of a movie. I think sense. it's just because it's a rare thing yeah. for Cronenberg that I just like, I recognize it's like, oh, he's kind of he's being a little playful and fun. I said out loud to myself when I was listening to that episode when you were talking about Maps of the Stars, him trying to do like comedy or satire. <laughs> I said to my lord, I'm like, oh lord, save, our, save us from David Cronenberg trying to be funny. <laughs> he's, oh he's man, like, you gotta see it. 
Right. You gotta see it to believe. You gotta see him do a uh, toilet scene with Julianne Moore farting. You gotta see it to believe it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But well, that, um, that, that, that happens in Master so, of the Stars. So <laughs> you. So okay, but just to go back to the topic of this of this episode, for you, the act of watching the Master again is the act of just sort of letting go of reservations. Pretty much. Um, yet, like. I wish I 100% could love it as and say this is a masterpiece mm-hmm. in the same way a lot of people I know think it is a masterpiece. Like, everybody thought this was the best movie of the year. It came out. And I tried. Again, again it's, just, it's, it's crazy to me that and your circles are so different way. than my circles. Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> are, are there people, like, you know, for the most part, people don't think that was one of the best movies of the year? Because I, like, I feel like that was like a universal claim at the time. It didn't. I didn't feel like it okay. at the time, but yeah, it's just we we must we must have just had different circles. Brian Tallarico, Kurt Halfyard. I'm trying to think of others. Maybe that's it. Because <laughs> I, I hold like, them in so high regard. That's all I think. I, I mean, you'd we'd have to actually like go over that year and yeah. I can't. We don't need to. I don't have that kind of memory. But no, nah, that's a, that's okay. I just I, again, it's I think it's just an interesting movie to revisit every couple mm-hmm. of years. Um, and I wonder if like I'll fully give into it and say this is the masterpiece that a lot of people think it is, because again it, it loses me, and it could just be on me yeah. rather than it's a fault of the film. Like, do you feel like once we get because I mean you you didn't perceive that m- the movie theater is a dream? Yeah. Is is it is it satisfying to you at the very end? Like what it's trying to say, what it's trying to convey? I think again, my main problem with the movie isn't the ending. My main problem with the movie is like the hour in between the boat, them getting off the boat, and the ending. Hmm. The hour, maybe an hour and fifteen minutes. I did not keep good track of that stuff, so I can't tell. But basically, my problem with the movie is that it's just that it spins, it establishes everything, and then it doesn't really do anything with it, and then it. Then it goes, and now here's the conclusion. And the conclusion feels inevitable, which is we can't they, they sever, do this forever. They, they part ways. Yeah. What becomes of Freddy? <laughs> like, I mean, he, he meets a girl. Well, he has that longing forever. He has that, he wants to be that for someone else. He wants to be, he wants to do it, but he doesn't understand what it is. And it's just like, he never did understand. But that, so to me, that ending is about that longing. And that, and him, he never got there. He never once really came close, but he always had that longing. And he still, even after sort of their accepted goodbyes, he still has that longing. And then the last line is, it fell out, put it back in again. That's who he actually is. His actually is, look, I need my dick in you. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, to me, that's what, that, that's what the ending is. He's, he even says to her, though, like, you're one of the bravest girls I've ever met. Yeah, because that's what was said to him. He, I don't know. I don't yeah. think he really means it. I think, I think that's just him. No, I'm not saying it's like a happily ever... He's met the girl and he's yeah. happily ever after. And I think that you're right in that the very final image is one of longing for something real, for a yeah. connection. You know, it's a connection to a, a body on a beach that isn't real. So that's it. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting note to leave... It doesn't just have that like I don't know catharsis or no 
<laughs> it just doesn't have... You, know, you, you better not look for the master for catharsis, my friend. I even find, like, because I know that even after we walked out of Inherent Vice together, I find the final image of Inherent Vice to be even more satisfying. What's than, the final image of Inherent Vice? Oh, just the, the, uh, the light come while they're driving away together. Like, there's a light, oh, and he's right. looking into the light. Yeah. And I, I find that really kind of haunting in a way. Like... It could just be something as simple as like the past. He's like the light represents the past, and it's always going to be there. And he's always looking, almost like in a paranoid state of like I'm always going to be looking at the past because it's always going to be there in my rear view, kind of a thing. I mean, that's probably a simple read of it, and I feel like Thomas Pinchon's deeper than that. So there's got to yeah, be but a Paul uh, Thomas Anderson might not be. No, and I just I he just gets to me on an emotional level, and that's, that's all that I ask for sometimes, and. I just love the way he tells stories, even if it's messy. Yeah. Um, and not clear. That's fair. Yeah. Inherent Vice is a lot weirder for me because Inherent Vice is an adaptation of a novel, and it has that thing that adaptations of novels have, where I feel like there's a lot to it that is not in the frame. Like, I just feel like... Like, whenever I watch the Harry Potter movies, I feel like they're just jumping from scene to scene to scene to scene because they have to cover all these events that are in a 500-page book. Um, and when I watched Inherent Vice, I just felt like, oh, yeah, we're hitting all the big scenes, but I don't think I actually know what's going on. Like, I just feel like what I'm seeing is a visual interpretation of what is actually the main piece of art. Um, and, you know... I think if, a second time, I, I was able to follow it better. Yeah, yeah. I would say so, too. At, at least... It was funny. Um, before I watched um, Joe versus the Volcano last night, uh, I got home from work, and uh, Regina was watching Primer. And Primer is a movie that is absolutely... This is the exact point. I've seen it six times. This is the exact point it loses me. Every single time. But... I forgive Primer because, A, the first 40 minutes are, like, the greatest thing ever. B, the movie's 75 minutes long, so the fact that I don't get the last 15 minutes of it is kind of okay. And C, the point in which it loses me is also in w- the point in which the characters realize that they're over their heads. And so, like, to me, there's a sort of synergy there that it actually... That is an interesting synergy. Makes me relate to the characters more in that way, but, like... Doesn't that sort of de- almost like debunk though your argument of like the the way the film is being told shouldn't necessarily reflect the character's state of mind? No, no, you're you're, af- you're absolutely right. Except that my main argument against the sort of somewhere it's a depressing it's a movie about someone. Oh, who can't going feel- full circle. Yeah, yeah, the the sort of the somewhere argument of it's a movie about someone who can't feel anything. So when you watch it, you don't feel anything. Is that's not engaging. Whereas Primer is never not engaging. By the way, since that Somewhere episode, apparently I've read a lot about how that's her Antonioni film. Okay. And I haven't seen any. I don't, I don't like Antonioni. Okay. <laughs> so that probably explains it. So I've seen, I've seen Blow Up and La Ventura when I was uh, in high school and early 20s, and I didn't like either. Oh, wow. I haven't seen Blow Up yet, and I need to. I'm curious, just because of the Blowout remake. It's, it's, uh, Blowout is an enter- it's entertaining. Blow Up is not. Okay. Um, I'm just curious now because, like, oh, maybe my problem I, with Antoni- I like somewhere. Yeah, maybe. My, pro- <laughs> my problem with Antonioni is basically the same problem I have with Godard, which is, like, I have no – there's no access point for any of this. I hate everyone in this movie. I don't think it looks particularly good. Like, everything about this I don't like. Um, 
which is, I think, a sensibility thing and not necessarily me saying those movies have no value. But I will say Primer is a movie I forgive absolutely for completely losing me in the last 15 minutes. So I absolutely understand you loving the master despite – I mean, yeah, I would say Primer is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I, I've looked up uh, – you know, I've looked up diagrams and stuff that explain the plot of Primer and I never remember Oh, my them. God. That just might leave my head completely dizzy. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like, yeah, even looking up those, I never remember them, and it never, it never matters once I actually watch it. And I think that is, to some extent, Shane Carruth's fault is just, as a storyteller, he doesn't give enough information visually, and he leaves it to his sound design of the narration, and he doesn't, it's not clear, and whatever. At any rate... That's oh, fine. Man. That you, it's fine you don't love the master. I mean, it's fine that you really like the master a lot, uh, even if you don't sort of uh, embrace it all. Yeah, not completely. Not as much as his other films. Yeah. Um, but again, I think it'll be interesting just to see if maybe I'll. That's probably why I like rewatching movies, because it's just. It, intellectually, I feel like. Maybe my mind will change and, you know, I'll grow to like it more or I might even grow to like it less. I think that's what's interesting about rewatches is to see if you feel differently about something later. It's almost like challenging yourself. Like, maybe I'll like this differently. And how differently? In what way? The concept you had, I couldn't think of really any examples of my own, this concept of movies that you return to and that you love. Um, but I will say in general the way movies growers grow, yeah I was going to say like movies that grow on you more yeah, the way movies grow on me is more like the first time I ever saw any Friday the 13th movie I thought this is hilarious it's terrible it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen because the acting is bad and blah 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 and then after I've seen 40 slasher movies I go okay these are the things I like about this movie and it's really just me having a context a historical context sure and understanding like Someone could tell me all the re- all the things they don't like about Friday Thirteenth, the last, the final chapter, and it could all have to do with the bad acting and the script or whatever. And to me, it's like, yeah, but it does all these things that it it emphasizes all the things that are good about slasher movies, and it and it deemphasizes all the things that are bad about slasher movies. Like, you know, it's just I have a historical context. The first time you see a some random like a uh, universal horror movie you might laugh at the acting and everything but then once you understand how acting was in the 40s and 30s and you watch them again you go oh no okay i your brain just adjusts yeah um and to me that's mostly how movies have grown on me is that i can watch a movie from the 30s and get scared by it um which i would never have been able to do as a high schooler because I would have not, I wouldn't have the historical context of what a movie from the '30s is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I saw Doctor X the other day, which is a Michael Curtiz movie, and that is a two-strip Technicolor movie. It's there are not many movies made in two-strip Technicolor. It's a very early hey. color film. It was made in like 1932, and it's mostly just orange and greens. It's weird. It's like black, white, orange, and green is basically the way I could describe it, and it's. It's an ugly movie, but it's captivating, and there's parts of it that are just, like, so shocking and thrilling because they don't have any music over it, and you just see these extended scenes of this guy, like, rubbing his face with this artificial flesh as he creates a mask, and, like, there's all this stuff that, like, as a kid, I've been like, this is boring as shit, why isn't anything happening? And then watching it now, I go, oh my god, this is great. So maybe in ten years you'll feel that way about somewhere. 
Probably not, because okay. I've seen plenty of movies from the era that Somewhere came out. <laughs> so historical context is not my problem. My problem is that it's a shitty movie, but I don't like uh, Sofia Coppola in general, which is just... I know, it's sad. Eh. I mean, like, it, it the most shocking thing that happened to me recently, recently being, like, last couple years, as far as my film life goes, is rewatching Lost in Translation and realizing it's not very good. Uh. I know that you, you're making the sound that like the fucking guy in Act of Killing makes when he realizes the extent of it. You're just like expelling hatred from your body. But uh, it's like, vile. But like speaking of historical context, like I see Lost in Translation and I haven't seen many movies like that. I'm like that movie's so different. It's incredible. And then I see like say I any know. Wong Kar Wai movie, and I go, oh, this is like a really bad version of a Wong Kar Wai movie. <laughs> Well, I wonder how I feel. Should like, I rewatch Magnolia like sh- now that I've seen so many Robert Altman movies? Because uh, well, I saw. Well, well you know. Magnolia is actually. It feels more like. Uh, it feels more like Scorsese than Robert Altman to me. Like, Robert Altman has intersecting narratives, but Robert Altman is not showy with the camera at all. And to me, Magnolia is all about the. Fluidity. The, the, yeah, the movement of the camera and the editing and the energy. And that to me is all Scorsese. Yeah. And you've seen plenty of Scorsese movies, so maybe you're just cursed to like Magnolia. What a terrible fate. You love Magnolia. Oh, well. It's a good movie. <laughs> well, I also saw After Hours at kind of an impressionable time in my life where I yeah. was developing sort of my cinematic taste or yeah. whatever I love. And maybe it's just fast cameras. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. To I you. don't know. Um, so but do no. you like Crank? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Does it for the same reason, sort of? I mean, it's not as yeah. good as After Hours or Magnolia, obviously, but like, you, I, I you do like, like the camera work I do sometimes like just a manic energy. Yeah. Well, even even something like it's not the same, but like a Scott Pilgrim, just because of its energy. Yeah, I like it. I don't love it, but I like it yeah. for what it is. Um, what are you talking about? You're right. You're talking. But about then one again, of the I, I mean, who knows? Maybe. Like I, I, I'd say the the Conformist is a slow moving movie, but it's yeah. really enveloping in yeah. its pace. Um, and same with Army of Shadows. Like they're they're very slow moving movies, where it's just like the camera work is is very fluid but not fast. It's just yeah. what's the word? Meticulous, maybe I guess, but just it's it's very carefully constructed. Yeah, uh, it's not just composition in the Conformist. It's light. Yes, and it's color. Color yes. is. There's no movie that uses color like The Conformist, really. Like, there's Wizard of Oz and The Conformist. <laughs> like, Wizard of Oz was like, fuck, we have color! Mm-hmm. Oh my god! And, like, someone <laughs> having an orgasm of color on the screen. And, like, The Conformist is so in, like, this is how you tell a story. Someone, Bertolucci, saying, yeah. this is how you have a story with color. If only they fleshed out the female characters a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, That's about, like, there's parts complaint. of The Conformist that I can't connect to at all, but none of it yeah. is formal. Um... So speaking of the opposite of manic energy, I I would say the opposite of manic energy, Joe versus the volcano. Tell me about the it's first a time. it's a movie that starts off with very little color and then there's more color as it goes along. I guess that's true. Tell me about the first time you saw Joe versus the volcano. I was young. Um, so you, did you see it when it came out? I saw it when it came out on VHS, so maybe ninety one ish, maybe around there. I might have even been on pay per view. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But uh, ugh. like I was a big fan of crazy manic. Burbs era Tom Hanks, like I thought he was a great comedic actor. Like I Do you really enjoyed that. Eh, not as much. Yeah. Like 
I am probably going to rewatch The Burbs this week just because uh, Rick Dukeman passed away, and I think that's kind of a bummer. I like that. I like Dukeman? that. He's uh, he plays uh, the, the 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 chubby next door neighbor in The Burbs. He oh, plays okay. uh, one of the drunks in Groundhog Day. He's just a you know a good co- comic character actor. He was also very briefly he turned off the power in Die Hard. He was the oh the, that guy yeah he's uh, well yeah. because he, I, because of the age I am I know him as the limo driver in Blank Check. That's 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 true as well. Okay, Rick Dukeman. And he was also I think Anna Faris's dad in Scary Movie. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And I think he was in uh, possibly uh, Action Jackson. <laughs> I can't recall that one. Everybody was in Action Jackson. That's true. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know how I'm going to feel about the Burbs now because especially after hearing both you and Kong going eh. On the Dante episode, I was like, what? No! But I, uh, I don't know, like, I, 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 Tom Hanks is a, he's an interesting actor for me, because there are times where I'm like, I can see why he's so beloved. He's just a regular Jimmy Stewart-esque kind of figure. And then there are times where he does get on my nerves, and there are times where he tries so hard, like in something like Philadelphia, that it kind of grates on my nerves a little bit, when he tries so hard to be a dramatic actor. Yeah. Um, he is not a. He does not disappear into a role. Yeah, <laughs> there's something I about still Tom see Hanks. Tom Hanks. There's something about Tom Hanks. Like there's moments in Joe versus the volcano where you see him like thinking, <laughs> like I mean this is bullshit. You can't actually see thoughts, but like it just it just feels like he's thinking like now what would be the exact funniest amount of comic timing to wait to respond? Then he responds like it feels there's an effort to it. Um, I think I like that though. Sometimes. Do you? What do you? What do you like about that? I don't know if it's about the belabored it, about belabored comedy. Does it come? I don't know if it. it I don't know if it comes from Zucker Brothers. I don't know where it comes from. But just well, like no, the, like you the, think the, about the, Zucker the, Brothers, like Leslie Nielsen is a natural comedian who there's no effort at all put into it. He just immediately does everything correctly. Yeah. But um, well, I, also, I, but I don't want to. I want to give credit where credits due. Uh, the the very final like ten minutes of Captain Phillips. That's when I was like, "Holy fuck, Tom Hanks!" Oh, really? Because like he has, you know, he goes through one of the most traumatic experiences anybody could ever ever could, and uh-huh. he's shake like if you've ever had a traumatic experience of any kind. Oh, so it's like a really just, physical performance. Yeah, well, just like in that last ten minutes, it's just like if you've ever had any sort of traumatic event happen uh-huh. to you in your life, you know what Tom Hanks is feeling in that moment. And he conveys it so well without being really showy. It's just like, really? why couldn't Tom... He should have just been nominated for this. Like, this is the Tom Hanks that I've been hoping for really? with dramatic performances. I, did you ever talk about Captain Phillips on the podcast when it came I out? I must have, because I love Paul Greengrass. So, I should have. I don't remember you talking about it. I really liked it a lot. Maybe I mean I have a bad memory. I could just I could just be. Hmm. It must have made my runners up that year. But anyway, that's that's a good Tom Hanks dramatic performance. But so yeah, when so I the first, first time you saw, I was indifferent to it. Like I thought, meh. I don't know why I didn't find it really charming or funny or uh, in, that engaging. I thought it's, it was kind of slow moving and not really that funny. A little forced. Um. And okay, so I, I read um, Ebert's review of it um, later in life, and I also see because you know this my, this is obviously before Letterbox, but on E Film Critic we were all posting our top ten lists from every year, and I saw on Colin's list for 1990 he placed Joe versus the Volcano as his number one above Goodfellas, uh-huh. and I was like, 
what the fuck? Uh huh. That doesn't seem right. Yeah. So it's almost as if like someone putting Die Hard Two as their favorite movie of that year. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, hi re- Nick DeGelio. Recently, <laughs> he doesn't listen. He doesn't care. <laughs> recently, um, you know, Col- well, in the past few years, Colin's been showing movies at his apartment because he has a projector and he can uh-huh. project on his wall, as you as you know. Right. Um, and one of the first movies he showed, just because he thinks it's an underrated classic, is. Uh, Joe versus the volcano, and um, I was like, okay, I really need to finally rewatch this just because of his love for it, and I know Ebert loves it, and it's just one of those movies that love it or hate it. It's just one of those weird anomalies mm-hmm. that um, agreed. It's kind of a, it's it's kind of an enigma, but after re- like I just love the shit out of it. The second time I saw it with at Collins, and I kind of went up to him, was like, dude, why? Why do people hate this movie so much? It's really charming. And you know what it is? It's it's almost again like the Forrest Gump argument I had. It's just a fairy tale fairy tale parable where its philosophy kind of speaks to me in a way where a little bit of optimism goes a long way in, in Joe versus the volcano. Um, a little bit? Uh you yeah. Think there's a little bit of optimism? You know, and so I'm a fan of that the, the parable, um, and I don't know if that just stems because a lot of my earliest storytelling memories as a kid are just like, you know, but it's just the, the 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 parables, the 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 you know the mother goose stories, the Peter and the wolf, the prince who wanted to see the world, the brothers Grimm, that kind of stuff. Um, I really liked that when I was young, where it's just a real simple moral, a really s- a simple story of somebody who's kind of down in the dumps and then is finds redemption somehow um so it's just a, a really well-told fairy tale that i also think is very existential um you know Kierkegaard had sort of this um belief in i want to say it's like these three stages of life that leads to self-realization self-actualization i think it was the Aesthetic, the ethical, the leap of faith. I think to some degree, John Patrick Shanley was tapping into that belief, both with having three Meg Ryan characters representing those three states and having Tom Hanks go through these three different stages in different ways. And there's also the recurring image of the lightning bolt, you know, being very obvious, <laughs> both when he's walking into the plant and when the lightning bolt hits the boat. Um, and then when he's going up the volcano, you see the pathway looking like the lightning bolt. So, I mean, th- what can I say? I just, I fucking eat this movie up. I don't know. It's just a really uh, heartwarming movie that kind of just, I'm suckered into. And I kind of get choked up in certain moments. The moon, I love the moon, the moon moment. I think it's beautiful. That's why I included in the clip party that we had. So, I mean, there's probably other things, I, other reasons why I love it so much, but uh, what are your beefs? I think it's a fine movie. I, think, <laughs> I don't think John Patrick Shanley is a good film director. I, I know John, John Pat, I know John Patrick Shanley as a as a playwright. He did Moonstruck, dude. He wrote he wrote Moonstruck. He he wrote. Um, oh yeah, he just wrote it, didn't he? Yeah, he didn't direct it. Uh, 
The only two movies he's ever directed is Joe vs. the Volcano and Doubt, and I think both are kind of amateurish in their direction. Um, Yeah, I just think he doesn't know how to pace a movie. Like, honestly, I think this could have been a great movie that you say say it is, or at least I could have had the feelings that you have for it, but it's just every scene takes twice as long as it needs to. Every every interaction... It doesn't feel long. Okay, I'm explaining how I feel right now. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Every interaction... Uh, between characters, there's always more pauses than there needs to be. Like, it Liz, like, I, I wrote about this on Letterboxd, and it, this is an absolutely true moment. At a certain point in the movie, I said, everything in this, I said out loud to Regina, who is sitting on the couch, uh, on, their, on their computer, I said, everything in this movie feels 50% too long. They should have gotten to this point at the 30-minute mark. And then I paused it to check what time it was, and it was exactly 45 minutes. Which, is, which was kind of amazing to me because that meant that my brain uh, precisely knew how too how long too long it thought it was, um, like and I just think yeah I just there's great moments in it the luggage salesman's great luggage salesman's fucking hilarious to me that's the clip that's the clip of the movie right there is is this <laughs> this this presents an interesting problem luggage wise <laughs> I'll buy four. May you live to be a thousand years. Like that guy is fucking great. I thought Ozzy Davis as the limo driver is great. The uh, Ozzy Davis just sort of like there's okay. So this movie's weird. This movie's odd. It has a very strange sensibility. That's what so I love about it. That's what I love about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's no surprise to me at all why it is a cult favorite among certain people because it is not what you at all. It's not at all what you would expect. Like I think Money Pit is a better movie, but Money Pit does not surprise you at all. Like, Money Pit is exactly what you sign up for when you see it. That, is, is, the, that of, is probably the pinnacle of the Tom Hanks comedic performance. Yeah. Like, Money Pit is a bunch of slapstick humor and things go crazy, but in the end they love each other and it all works out. Like, Money Pit's the most predictable thing ever. And Joe vs. the Volcano is not. But, uh, yeah, I just, don't, I just don't think he's a great director. I think he's a good screenwriter. I think if someone else directed this, it would have been wonderful. Um, I, so yeah. it should have been tighter. Yeah, absolutely. Like... In little ways that I can't even say this scene isn't necessary, it's more just like the scene in which he leaves the doctor's office and then he sees the dog. Like, that could have happened in 30 seconds, but instead it takes a minute. It's just little things like that that add up to me being very exasperated with the movie. Um, I don't know. I mean... I, yeah, it just to me reveals someone who doesn't understand how time scales differently. Because John Patrick Shanley has directed way more of theater productions. In addition to being a playwright, he's directed a bunch of theater productions. And he's has way more experience doing that than film. And to me, it just kind of shows. Like, you see that opening scene where Dan Hedia is yelling at him for <laughs> I love that. But that scene just goes on and on and on. And you could have gotten all the information in that scene in 45 seconds, but it, it, it just takes forever. And there's, <laughs> and there's just a lot of that. And it's just, Maybe it's just like the, the sideshow Bob Rake effect for me in that moment. I don't think it is. I mean, for you, possibly. I don't know. But like, to me, it isn't that because it's just that everything is slow. It's not that everything is happening again and again to absurd effect. Like... Yeah, I don't it know. It seems absurd. I mean, what I it feels like Gilliam without the energy. Like Gilliam under, absolutely understands energy and timing and pacing because Gilliam would be told when he was working on Monty Python's Flying Circus, he would be told, "All right, here's the fir- here's the sketch that you need to link to this sketch and you have 45 seconds to do it." 
go. So, like, yeah. Gilliam direct, d- developed an extremely good sense of comic timing and understanding of how things should be paced and energy, and I don't think John Patrick Shanley has that. And I... Like, I was excited when the movie opened, and it was so surreal. I was like, oh, my God, this is fun. I thought this was going to be straightforward, and it's actually crazy. And then that scene just kept going and going and going so the whole song could play, that opening kind of blues song or whatever. And I, was, and I just sort of sunk in my seat. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't mind it when scenes take their time. Look, I'm not trying to convince you not to like this movie. I'm just telling well, I you what I thought. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, I don't know. You chose this movie... Uh, do you have it's something special to me? It yeah, really but is. I mean, and I understand why you had a near death experience that I haven't had yet. Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> the, when I have my next death experience, is the night be, is young, Patrick. Well, hopefully, the next time I have any kind of death experience, it's going to be a fucking finisher because I can I don't want any near death shit. Um, I just it's I no just fun. want it to end. Um, but uh, yeah, like. I understand why you like this movie. I was just you chose this movie, so like, is there is there something very specific about why what changed between the first time you saw it and seeing it now, or perspective? I don't know, like just uh, life experience. Um, I don't know. Maybe at the time, like I was kind of not the biggest fan of. I, was, I don't know, like, even when I was younger, I wasn't like, yay, Tom Hanks, yay, Meg Ryan. I wasn't really into either of them. Um, and really, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't until we rewatched In the Cut that I kind of went, you know what, Meg Ryan isn't so bad. Yeah. Why, why, why have I not really given her any credit? She's actually okay. That's funny. What and she's we, really good in this. I think we she's funny. When were watching this movie, Regina said to me, is Meg Ryan playing all the female characters? And I go, no, I don't think so. I think she just plays the one that he falls in love with at the end. And then... She goes, no, I think she's all the characters. And I looked, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess this is Meg Ryan. <laughs> yeah. um, and I have so little experience with Meg Ryan that, that I didn't You didn't, didn't go through a Nora Ephron phase at all? No, I didn't. Mm. I mean, I like, uh, I, like, uh, I like Julie and Julia about as much as the next guy, but that's about as Aww. much Nora Ephron. Oh, no, she wrote Heart, uh, Heartburn. Heartburn. I like Heartburn as much as the next guy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I never seen Sleepless in Seattle. I've never seen uh, You've Got Mail. Like Harry Met Sally. Harry Met Sally. I've seen once, and I'm not a fan of it because it's like ah, I know what Woody Allen movies are like. I don't need to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> but so I mean, she's fine in it. I, I do want to ask you about this movie. How do you feel about the last ten minutes? Does that not the, the, feel like a giant cop out to you that he doesn't actually have to face death? No. It's not actually an existential problem because at the end everything is solved. I like, think that the. You think, like to me, like in the course of six minutes, it goes from I've accepted my death and I've had a great time during the time I had left. And to me, that's like, that actually says something. And then at the end, it's like the volcano goes, oh no, never mind. Here's a happy <laughs> ending. Everything's fine. You don't have a brain cloud. Like. And then to the point where but you don't it, even see the tribesmen sinking, it's just like, well, I guess the island's gone. Well, we have three minutes to clear this up. It's just more—it's just more absurd to me. I don't know. But it's, like, uh, I, yeah, I mean, it, if it's funny to you. It's funny to you. It's not funny to me. I think that it, part. in that moment, like, okay, he thinks it's time. He's going to sacrifice himself. He's going to have a heroic death, and he sort of jumps into the you know allegorical hell, and. That hell rejects both of them because they're essentially good people. I don't think that's allegorical hell. I think that's just death. Well, I think Lloyd Bridges is the devil. 
and uh, <laughs> sending him off to hell in the volcano's hell. Um, okay. <laughs> it's just I, I have this unfounded like ridiculousness in my own head where that's I. That's fine. That's 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 how you view it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because me, I just I was so shocked that I was like, wait, how much of this movie is left? They haven't even got. Well, to it was going to be even r- more silly with. Like Lloyd Bridges was going to show up at the end of the movie with on a different boat and rescue them and be like, "What happened?" Oh like, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Like they just sort of sail off, and I love how you know it's like, "Oh, we're just going to sail away from the things of man." And I just love how she says, "Oh, it's always going to be something with you, Joe." I don't know. I just think all that's like in most things, I'd be like, "That's really ridiculously cheesy and silly." Yes, but I find it sweet. I mean, I don't have much to say about this movie. It's a comedy that I didn't think was well-directed and didn't have good timing. And to me, that's most of comedy, so I just didn't think it was very good. Like, yeah, I, I Maybe I'm for more it. forgiving of timing. I, I appreciate it for, for its odd sensibility. And I'm, I'd much rather watch this than, you know, like Blind Date. You know, or it's like some other 80s... I mean, I guess this is 1990, technically, but it feels like an 80s comedy. And I'd much rather watch this than, you know, some, like, by-the-numbers comedy that doesn't have a real I personality. It, it sort of subverts expectations, like, even with, like, oh, here comes that horrible rascal song, Good Lovin' with a montage, and then how does it end with a ridiculous shark I don't thing? think that's subverting expectations. I think... It's really silly. I forgot about that. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's so silly. I know it's silly, but it's fucking horrible. I can't, you can't put Joy Lovin in any goddamn movies. Do you know how many movies <laughs> Lovin has been in before Joe vs. the Volcano? It was in like six movies before Joe vs. the Volcano. Like, and that's... Bef- and There's gotta be like a, a ridiculous sort of meta-awareness of that fact and I putting it in so. there. I don't think so, because it's not that kind of movie. Like, there's nothing else in that movie that's meta. Why is that part meta? Just because you like it? Like, <laughs> like I think it's just, like, a fucking terrible music choice. I can't stand that song anymore. I know. Because anytime people are having fun in a movie, the fucking rascals have to start playing. It's terrible. You know, what's, you know, what, you know what movie made me finally give up on that song forever? Where it's like, if I ever hear that song in a movie again, I hate that fucking song and that scene's shit is um, American Gangster with Ridley Scott where there's like a pool party scene oh, that has good loving in it because later in that same movie that he plays across 110th Street oh. which is like how can you do that? How can you put that? No! It, fucking Tarantino and whoever directed across 110th Street they're the only two people who own that song you're not allowed to fucking do that in your dumb montage about drug users Fuck you, Ridley Scott. And I, I got so mad when Good Lovin'. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I hate, I hated Good Lovin' in this. Um, Ozzie Davis is probably Ozzie Davis and the guy who sells luggage is probably the MVP for me. Well, Ozzie Davis is the guardian angel. Yeah, he, he's he, the guardian angel who's there for four, five minutes. You know how like no, guardian no, no, angels no, no, aren't like there so, the entire time. He sort of says like, "You're gonna need some luggage." And look what happens. The luggage sort of saves All right. everything. All right. Well, you're right. This is the fucking it's a beautiful work of movie. the poet Dante. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I don't know what to <laughs> say to you. I don't know what you want from me. For like, You're the one who chose this as the movie we concentrate on, but I don't have any history with this movie, so I can't really talk about it. We can talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to talk about, Jim? Let's talk about our history. Well, you know what we could do? Predictions. Okay. Since you may not be on the podcast long term, right? We can uh, like let's do predictions of what you're going to think about other movies in the future. 
Okay, well, name them. I don't know any movies that are coming out <laughs> until they're already out. So tell no, me. No, like, um, what? How, what do you think you're gonna like? What? Um, I'm gonna uh, let's see. Hmm. Uh, like, what do you mean? I wonder what Patrick's gonna think of Kurosawa's High and Low. Listeners, why don't you guess how many stars Patrick's gonna give on Letterboxd? And if you're correct, you'll win a prize. Kurosawa was a bad bet. <laughs> Kurosawa was very frustrating for me. I, I, I started like five Kurosawa movies and then turned them off because I wasn't in the mood. There's something about the way he makes movies that I guess it doesn't fit right with my head. So that's a bad, bad or a good example just because I'm a weirdo hmm. who's not into Kurosawa. Okay. But what, what, is this really what we're doing right now? <laughs> It's prediction. I'm going to come up with a jingle and everything. It's predictions with Patrick. But you're like, oh boy. No, okay, maybe that won't work. What do you? So you just like you just like Joe versus the volcano, and you didn't think you liked it before. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's that simple. It's that simple. Um, I can understand if people think it's just dumb and silly and weird and not I don't funny this, and charming. I, I just think it's not bad. I just don't think it's well directed. I, I like every... I like the tone of it. I just think he doesn't know how to pace a pace a scene for hmm. comedy. Hmm. Like, I think all the comedy just dies on the vine for most of it. Pretty much until Ozzie Davis shows up, I didn't laugh once in the movie. Well, I'm also not as funny as you, so maybe there's... I, the t- I'm, <laughs> I, think that, I think that you do have a higher standard for comedy. I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think, like... Know if that's true. It's just different sensibility. I'm just. Well, yeah, to, that's probably true. All I'm trying to do is relate to you I my mean, experience watching it. I'm not trying to tell you how to feel about it. No, I know, I know that, and I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. I just, uh, I think it's 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 tough to defend a movie when you have a really personal reaction to it that feels like, you know, because you have a certain experience that maybe you can equate to this movie, like a life death or a near death experience. That maybe, again, your your normal tendencies to be critical to say like, okay, this scene probably does play too long, or maybe he spends way too much time on that raft uh, before like you know anything happens. I can I can sort of see people getting restless with that, you know, and maybe other scenes, sure, but uh, for some reason, like everything gels with me this time, and yeah. to me, it's a like a, a it's an overlooked gem. Like even Ebert himself at uh, the 2012 Ebert th- Fest said, "I gave this movie three and a half stars, and I I wish I'd given it four when it first came out because mm-hmm. it's almost perfect." Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. People like it. I don't, but that's fine. Maybe you'll feel differently in ten years. That's why I love rewatches, Patrick. Yeah, and that's the theme of this episode. Is it? <laughs> um, another movie I'm thinking about rewatching um, maybe later this year is Under the Skin because I'm curious to see how I'm going to feel about that. Um, a oh, that, time. that movie gets better every time you see it. Yeah, I'm, uh, it, that's what I'm mostly interested in because, like, I again, it's a movie that concludes in a way that I wasn't clear about. Like, I kind of went, "Hmm, how do I feel about this?" And I wasn't sure. Like, I, it, to me, it became. A little bit more Starman esque with her, like sort of going out into the world and having a piece of cake. Um, and the, the Starman w- is a feel good movie. Well, I know. I'm not like it's just it. It changes abruptly for me in a way that is less interesting as everything that came before it. I think it's yeah. 
I, uh, I, I have, um, I disagree. <laughs> or but I might feel different. I'm, I'm yeah. guessing that now that I know what I'm in for, I'll read into it a little bit differently when I see it a second time. Um, I'm trying to think of other movies that might be applicable yeah, like, to Yeah, like, movies don't grow on me. That's the thing about, that's why I don't think I'm ever going to like <laughs> Joel versus the Volcano very much. It's just like, movies don't really grow on me in that way. I mean, a lot of times I don't, because actually the reason for that is I don't finish movies that I don't like. So I can't say I've watched certain movies because I never sat through them. Like I, for the longest time I sat, you know, I was like, oh, I never sat through eight and a half. I saw the first 20 minutes of it and I just got bored and I turned it off. I don't sit through movies I don't like. So therefore the first time I actually see a movie, I don't have like another full viewing experience to compare it to. Hmm. You know, it's like the, when I actually saw Eight and a Half last year, like for the first time all the way through, I was like, oh, that movie's amazing. Um, it's not one of my favorites, but like it's a real remarkable achievement. But I, but I, and that was different than my reaction to it the first time I tried watching it, but I can't say it's different than the first time I saw it because the first time I saw it was last year. You know what I mean? So I don't sit through, I turn off movies if I don't like them. I don't like wasting my time. I, uh, I'm actually – I watched uh, this movie called Beyond the Reach last night. It's a 2015 movie with uh, Michael Douglas and it's like a – Well, I never heard of it. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a most dangerous game meets Blue Ruin kind of. It's kind of a very strict – Speaking down. of which, real quickly, Blue Ruin, that the director, yeah. has a new movie coming out later this year that Mike D'Angelo said is great. Oh, that's good. I think it's called The Green Room. The Green Room? Okay. Yeah. But anyway, um, Beyond the Reach – I I watched and I, like the first twenty minutes of it, I was like all right this is just direct to video whatever trash yeah and then I when I sat through it I was happy I did because it is it was funny because it was the thing when I saw Blue Ruin what I said was I wish that direct to video action movies were more like this where it's like all right you don't have great actors and you don't have a big budget so why don't you just make a small scale detail driven movie without a lot of dialogue and that is what Beyond the Reach is and then it's all right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like my wish came true and I realized I didn't really care about my wish very much um, but I will say I'm curious but I sat anyway I sat through that whole thing because I wanted to be able to tell people who came into the store because that that comes out on DVD on Tuesday and I wanted to be able Ooh, to say do you get movies ahead of time? yeah oh nice yeah we get them yeah, we get them like five days ahead of time or whatever so it would it would be a nightmare if we had to put them in the system and everything the day of um, oh yeah, that's true. I worked in a video store. I should know that. That's right. Yeah. So I just forgot. So like, I watched through. I I only sat through it because I wanted to be able to tell people whether or not it was good. Um, and do people really do that a lot? They they say, "Is this movie any good?" Yeah. Oh, okay. Or they ask me what, what's good that came out recently. Um, that's good. I'm glad people do that instead of just looking up on their phones or. I mean, people yeah. do that as well. Yeah. I. But yeah. So. There's sometimes I'll watch a movie that I don't I'm not into and I'll sit through the whole thing just for another reason like well I already said I was going to watch all of these movies so I'm going to watch Final, I'm going to sit through Final Destination 4 even if I think it's a piece of garbage like because I wanted to watch all the Final Destination movies you know or uh, like there's a found footage horror movie that came out a couple years ago called Mr. Jones and I sat through the whole thing just because I was so mad at the first hour that I wanted to like that I wanted to finish it just so I could register my anger but in general if I don't like a movie I don't finish it I have no I have no problem with turning off a movie 
So, hmm. I, in general, I need like, that closure. Yeah. Or I'm going to feel like, well, maybe it got good and I just, you know, I'm always going to wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell. Like, I started watching the Thing remake. I think that's what Mike D'Angelo does, too. I think you're in the same boat as him with that. Yeah, I can. I, I feel like I can tell when a director doesn't know what they're doing. Like, I watched that Thing remake, and the first attack from the Thing... Ugh. Okay, I was waiting for that. <laughs> um, delayed reaction. Yeah, the, the, the delayed uh, vocalization. And the first time the a thing attacks, it was just like completely incoherently shot and edited. And I, re- I was like, oh, okay, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And I just turned it off. And I was like, all right, I'm done. Like I started watching Amy's O, this like indie comedy from the early aughts. And that was terrible. And I was like, oh, okay, this person is not funny. And this person is making the most generic indie comedy ever. I'll turn it off. That movie sounds okay. No, 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 it's bad. Um, okay. So I don't have a lot of movies that have grown on me other than movies I already liked but didn't realize how good they were. Like, I liked Carnival of Souls the first time I saw it, but it was not one of my favorite movies the first time I saw it. I think that, that that's more the case. With you two? Yeah. Have you ever had an instance where you hated a movie and then you turn around and you loved it? Dreamcatcher? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you love Dreamcatcher now? The, the first time I saw it, I really hated it and thought it was garbage, and now I kind of And now it. you know, it's Garbage. It's garbage. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. It's one of the weirdest movies mm-hmm. ever to come out of a Hollywood studio. It and came that, out of Lawrence day. Kasdan's butt. Yeah. Like, like what the hell? Lawrence Kasdan and who adapted it? I don't know if it was Lawrence Kasdan. I, I, I feel it like was. it's a big name. It was Lawrence yeah. Kasdan and uh, some other guy. I can't remember. Okay. But God. Morgan and they and they said Morgan Freeman, your eyebrows should look like a cartoon owl's, <laughs> and and it was so, and they saw it was good. Yeah. So movies that are so bad they're good, you've grown to appreciate it in that mm-hmm. context. With time, time helps that too. When you when you pay money and you see it in the theater, you yeah. get mad, and then when you see it later, you're like, oh man, that's amazing. But even with something like um, The Shining, didn't after seeing Room Two Thirty Seven, didn't that make you immediately want to rewatch it and? Look for things and maybe um, appreciate it on a different level. I felt like I had just watched it. There's so much footage <laughs> yeah. from The Shining. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, the the in between me seeing the uh, Room 237 in theaters and then, I mean, also my takeaway from Room 237 was at no point, at no point during watching the movie did I think, oh yeah, this guy is onto something. So I, I didn't want to rewatch it to see what they saw. I was just sort of like, I wanted to rewatch it to see what I understood as the befuddling um, sort of uh, subconscious capabilities that that movie has. Hmm. But that, I think, the, I think the delay between me rewatching The Shining and Room 237 probably was like a year or something. So After seeing his new movie, The Nightmare, I couldn't wait to go to sleep. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I wonder what fucked up dreams I'm going to have after seeing that. Yeah. Uh, robots, uh, robots clawing your dick or something? Isn't yeah, that one aliens. Of them? Okay. Aliens clawing my dick. Um, I'll be interested to see what you think of Manglehorn, David Gordon Green's latest movie. Because um, very good things about it. It's great. Yeah, and I wish people would stop uh, crapping all over it because uh, <laughs> it hurts your feelings. Yeah, um, it's really good. It's uh, David Gordon Green's. It's 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 exactly what he does and what he does well. Mm-hmm. It is very Prince Avalanche. It is very. It's it's just like in the same um, wheelhouse as the stuff he's been doing, but even more low key, less plotty, 
and very it's just focused on Al Pacino and him living a really lonely life with a cat and him not being able to connect with people socially and even when he's trying to he's still hung up on the past and Mm -hmm. it's just it's a really well shot really interesting movie the only thing that really bugged me was just like including Harmony Corinne as like a Danny McBride kind of character was like showing up to be comic relief which was just really painful. I've never. I don't even know what Harmony Corinne looks like. That's a you don't want to know. Sentiment. You don't want to know. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. I think, and the basis of what he does as a filmmaker, he's one of those like I don't know what he how he does it, but it works for me almost every time. Yeah, and uh, Al Pacino's great because it's a low key, not a hoo ha kind of performance, and I don't know why there's so much hatred for it right now because it's really good. But I'm just curious to see what you'll think of that. Yeah, maybe I'll like it. I um and faults. I wanted to know what you're going to think of faults. Sure, I've uh, I've I've also realized now that I'm not going to be on the year end episode. Which <gasps> that is, I'm going to find somebody else. Well, I mean, it's not my it's not my podcast anymore. Um, it, you're still there. In spirit. I don't feel obligated to watch a lot of 2015 movies. That's true. In 2015. That's true. Um, I watched Beyond the Reach because I wanted. That's a 2015 movie, but I only watched that because I wanted to be able to be able to talk about it at work. But so I don't know. I watch. Maybe I'll watch Manglehorn. Maybe we'll get it on DVD sometime. We'll get it. Yeah. I, saw I mean, Welcome, I, assume... I saw Welcome to Me. You see that? It's okay. <laughs> it's one of those movies too, where it kind of it doesn't like sit well with me because of exploiting a mental illness of sorts. Mm-hmm. And like turning it into a TV show, and I mean, I know it's a movie, so it's not really happening. <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing to say, <laughs> but it's—I laughed and I cringed, and there were things I liked about it, particularly Kristen Wiig, because I like her in everything pretty much. Um, I was just kind of like. Mm, at the end. Yeah. I didn't feel one way or the other about it. I was just like, eh, it was okay. Didn't love it or hate it. You know? I'm, I'm just, I'm also getting frustrated. Well, I, this is going to change, and I think Bill Ackerman and I talked about this off mic. I, I think it's, now that Jennifer Jason Lee is in a Quentin Tarantino movie, I think we can safely say that she's not going to be resorted to being in the background and not just like a supporting player that doesn't really get to do a whole lot because I think she's a tremendous actress and for the most part in the past few years I'm I'm so lost right now what do you mean she's not going to be in the background she's been in the background for so many movies lately what just sitting in like in in Welcome to Me she's practically in Welcome to Me she's just like in the boardroom with hardly any dialogue she's just sort of sitting there I don't know anything about Jennifer Jason Lee I don't recognize her Mm, okay um but yeah, I think she's a great actress, and I want her to have a great role again. And I think that's finally going to happen with with Hateful Eight. So like, um, and Welcome to Me, she's just sort of just sitting there, and that kind of bummed me out. Uh, but I mean, I, I, it was fine. It was not something I actively disliked or loved. I was just kind of like, eh, not bad. Uh huh. Eh, eh. I didn't care about it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I was just trying to think of a thing to talk about. Just go see Inside Out, and you'll be fine for the whole year. Okay. No, I think I think you're going to like it. 
I don't believe anyone type anymore. I've absolutely, completely jettisoned the concept of believing critical hype anymore. After after Mad Max Fury Road, I was just like, okay, I'm officially some other weird person, and I will not rely on people freaking out over a movie. So I'll, I'll probably like Inside Out. I liked Mad Max Fury Road, but I'm not going to buy into anything ever again. Okay. Yeah. I think maybe I should just stop saying everything's so great. I <laughs> I think, well, I mean, I get, I, when you see something really great and you get on this euphoric high, your first instinct is to get on get on the horn, uh-huh. as uh, Dabney Coleman would say in uh, War Games, and preach to everybody, I want you to see this so you can have a similar experience. Mm-hmm. Without thinking, guess what? They may not have that same experience. Yeah. And that's cool. And then I realized that later. I'm not criticizing you for loving Mad no, Max Fury. No, I'm, I'm just. I do just feel guilty though. I, I Why fe- do you feel guilty? Because like I feel like what, I had. What I, possible I, I, reason would you have to feel guilty about I feel liking like, Mad Max no, Fury? Well, I mean, I feel like I hyped it up to so many people that they walked out of it going, "Yeah, it was pretty good." But that's how you felt, right? You weren't like deliberately like. Yeah, it is how I felt. That was awesome. Okay. Well. Then where's the guilt come from? Childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the guilt. The guilt, the guilt. Yeah. yeah, I mean... The Jewish guilt, even though I'm not Jewish. Right, the Catholic guilt. Yeah, the Catholic Jewish guilt. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I know, I just... Whatever, I have weird taste in movies. That's good. I think that's great. I think it's good to stand out. It's for what, what? purpose? To have to be a distinctive voice. I'm not a voice anymore, though. No, That's yes, nice you're, thing. you're a voice on Letterboxd. Everybody can go read your reviews on Letterboxd. Like, you know, I, w- I was, like I told you before we started recording, I'm listening to this podcast with Mike D'Angelo. was like, eh, I'm not really that good of a critic, you know? And it's just like, dude, you're writing some great things. Mm-hmm. And I think your opinions are always great to read. Mm-hmm. And I always love hearing you talk about film. You don't give yourself enough credit, like most people. <laughs> like, what a, eh, enough credit for what? What? I don't know. What? Just think that when you articulate your opinion about film, yeah, that it's worth something. But if I, but worth what? What am I? What am? What is it good for? What? It, what am I giving myself credit for? Really? For like, knowing what you're talking about? For being passionate about something? Because there are people in this world who aren't. Yeah, I know, but. Knowledge. Yeah, but as far as that goes, I'm still pretty low on the totem pole. Why do you have to compare <laughs> to becoming a, a, a psychoanalysis all of a sudden? No, you don't have to compare yourself to everybody. I know, but if you're saying, but you just compared me to other people saying you're passionate about something other people aren't. <laughs> ah, yeah. But I still think you. Maybe it's because I know you. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, I don't know all those other people on Letterbox or all sure. those other critics out there. Um, maybe I'd feel their their opinions are valid too if I actually knew them as a person. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but, I um no, I mean, I write on Letterbox because it's an easy thing to do. That is, it's 
it's methadone because I'm not on Facebook anymore. <laughs> like that's that's what Letterboxd is. Like that's what Twitter is. That's because I'm not on Facebook and I'm not on Twitter and I don't see anyone anymore. But if I just write down, you know, seven sentences about every movie I see and then someone likes it, then it's fucking little dopamine rush. Like it's just methadone. Like I don't think it's actually anything. I'm not. I don't have. I'm not a good writer. Like I might have. I think I understand film. I think I have an intuitive yes. understanding of cinema. But I'm not a good writer, so that's not leading to anything. I can't write reviews for any website because I'm just a terrible writer. I fucking hate writing synopsises and I, I hate having to explain myself. And I just want to write whatever I feel in seven sentences. And that's not what gets hit. So, like, it's not like, oh, yeah, you're a great writer and someday you're, that's going to be your career. It's not a career and it's not doesn't have to be. No, I know, but it's not anything. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just... It's something that I think methadone. a select group of people look forward to. Just like they look forward to, you know, the podcast. Yeah. I'm always surprised when that happens, but <laughs> sure. it's happened. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. It's not like I, I'm saying we're amazing. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're not. I just think, like, we do something, mm-hmm. and some people don't do anything. <laughs> and I just like to say we should be grateful for when we have some kind of gift to talk, to connect, yeah. you know. Um you know, I used to feel that way about like music and stuff, but then I realized, you know what? I am just pretty much putting on the internet and only a few people are listening to it. And <clears throat> once the podcast became something at least, and you see like, oh, Maybe there are 500 different people listening to it, not just 200 people downloading it, yeah. you know, a few times or whatever. That felt good. So that's why it's, you know, it's, it's good to keep doing it. I don't know if it's going to stay that way. And I kind of like that uh, the unpredictability of everything. But I'm just saying that you shouldn't dismiss your opinions and your talents. Oh, I'm not, I'm not dismissing my opinions. I just know them for what they are, which is just my opinions. I don't think they're particularly insightful but it's just sort of a thing i'm stuck with well maybe it's a subjective opinion that i think they are insightful well okay well thank you but do you ever feel like a monk you ever feel like you've sort of just dedicated your life to this thing that doesn't (laughs) respond (laughs) back to you and uh you know like fucking uh purple rose of cairo style where it's just like the movies don't love you back um do you ever feel like you've dedicated your life to building this thing inside of yourself that you don't even know what you're building. You're just sort of like, well, I need to see this movie. Well, why? Because I've never seen that movie. Well, why do you need to see it? Well, why is that important? Because I need that in me. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you ever feel like that this like compulsive film watching is almost just like a, like a, like a sort of mental An obligation at this or, point? or a mental monastery. Wow. Well, I mean, it could be, I like, I do feel I have to see the new Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, well, you want to. That's pleasure. But I'm saying, yeah. like, do you feel, do you feel guilty? Okay, so let me. In my turn, for me, I feel guilty that I've seen so little French New Wave. I feel guilt. I have guilt over. But if you it. don't, if you don't get pleasure out of it, then no. But I dedicated my life to this thing. I've dedicated my life to film, and French New Wave is a huge part of it. So I should. This is my reasoning, by the way, not logic. <laughs> this is, this is a, there's, no, there's, no, there's not a logical bot to be found here, but um, I've, this is the monastery thing going, like, I've dedicated my life 
I've dedicated my life to God and I've never read these books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, is it possible? I mean, can you feel okay with missing a certain chunk of film history? I only like I'm German only okay. expressionism. No, I mean, I'm, how I many different only, types of genres I can there only are? I feel okay as long as I know that I'm not going to be missing that chunk forever, and eventually I'll get to it. That is how my brain works. That's what I mean by like, maybe you'll get to it when you're forty, fifty years old. Who knows? Well, that's what I'm There's saying. There's so many not, books I need to I'm, read. But I know. But I'm saying like I haven't dedicated myself to books. I've dedicated myself to fucking movies, and it feels good though, doesn't it? It's a thing. <laughs> like, I mean, when you go to the movies and you're going to see some repertory cinema, doesn't that feel good yeah, when you go absolutely. to it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's just, it's this fucking, uh, it's, it's this, uh, it's this mental hospital that you've uh, committed <laughs> yourself to. It's this, it's a jail cell. It's a jail cell that you embrace. It's this, uh, it's this monastery that, you know, you're, you're embracing. Um, that you're dedicating your life to a single thing and it's not even that's the thing that's like it's not even like I'm a film writer that is my career therefore in order for me to advance in my career and to be the best possible film writer I need to have this knowledge in my head Mm -hmm. for me I need to have that knowledge in my head just because it's a fucking obsession. It's a weird thing. I've but it keeps myself. you sane. I'll, yeah. Well, that's debatable. But, <laughs> but like, I don't you? Do you have a feeling like you're building something? Like every movie you see, you're building something. This means something inside of you. This not, is important. Not not out of uh, mashed potatoes, but like, no. Do you do you feel like every time you see a movie, like every time I see a universal horror movie that I've never seen before, I go. No, I've seen that movie. That's another notch in your belt? That's another notch in my belt. That's another, just, like, another brick in this building that I'm building <laughs> inside myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you feel that way? Sometimes I think that's true. I'm, I not, think, I'm uh, not saying it's a bad no, thing. No, it's not a bad all, thing. I no mean, because there are people who feel that way about sports, who yeah, watch every yeah, single sporting yeah, exactly. event. No life means anything. All Everything is meaningless, absolutely. So this constructed meaning <laughs> is equal to whatever other constructed meaning someone else has. That's fine. I don't have a real big problem with that. But I don't have a word for that thing I'm building myself. Hmm. Do you need a word? Oh, Maybe or- that would give it meaning. Or, or, or what, is, what am I building it for? Because I'm not on a podcast, and I'm not writing, really. And I'm not... What am I doing with this? Why am I... Why am it's I, a part of your life narrative. so it, many hours of my week? Why am I spending... I'm watching at least a movie a day, maybe two or three movies a day. So that means that I'm spending somewhere near, like, 20 to 30 hours of my week... Which is almost a full-time job Towards this thing Inside of me For what? That's what I, that's what I think about yeah. sometimes I mean, I'm still going to do it I'm not going to stop Well, you're, you're doing it for pleasure Yes, you're, that's part you're, of it You're doing it also because it's almost A part of your narrative, too Like, it's It's, yeah. it's consistent okay. <laughs> Like, you've been doing it for so long That it, it, it would feel weird not to do it that's, I think there's actually a lot to that. I think there's something about, and I'm sorry that this podcast just went way the fuck off. It's turning into a Mark Marin interview. Yeah, this podcast just went in the fucking stratosphere. I don't know what the fuck this is now, but I keep the microphones on. Um, I do feel like there is something, I don't have much satisfaction in my life, but sometimes I can look back at thoughts I've had on film two years ago and dismiss them as ridiculous and then feel good about 
having advanced that much in two years. Oh. And I think there, I think there's something when you said so you're evolving. That, yes. Yeah. I'm I'm building myself into something. It's this yeah, like it's like this building inside of me, or this building that I am becoming, or something. But I still don't know what to to what purpose it is. I always go. I'm just doing this because I'm not married with kids yet. Because <laughs> when the time comes, and if so it you're comes, just, you're just killing time. Yeah, a little bit you're, sometimes. You're just I think that's a, that's a part of it. Not that's not the whole reason, obviously, mm-hmm. but I think that's a part of it. Like I think. Once that time comes, because I always hear that. I always hear, like, once you're married and you have kids, say goodbye to all yeah. the things that you used to love to well, do for I mean, hours and it. hours. That's the other thing. I'm never going to be married and have kids. So, like, that's just that's just out of the picture. You've, you're done? You're, that's, that's pretty much in your... Yeah. Okay. I mean, in the foreseeable future. I Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball, but, yeah. Right. Like... My partner doesn't want children, and I respect that. And I don't know if I even believe in the concept of marriage. And I, I don't either. Yeah. I don't know. That's a tough. There is a Doug Stanhope bit where he says, "Promising to love someone forever is like promising to be lucky." Ooh. <laughs> I, think I think that's really true. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, and I don't know if I believe in marriage in its legacy and its historical context and everything. But eight and a half will always be there. Well. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe that's it's dependable. Like, it's like I know. I'm not, yeah, I mean, maybe it is replacing my life. I was saying more just uh, like I don't know if I want to view it that way. Maybe it's I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe I, I don't have to. We don't, we don't have to put it in a box. But do you, I, so I'm just super curious, and I'm sorry I keep asking the same questions over and over again. But I just really want to get to the because I want to know if you feel like this and if other people feel like this, like. I think I do. I just haven't really acknowledged it yet. Do you? Because in my head, the way I think about film is eventually I will, like, on a long enough timeline, I will see every movie ever made. Like, that is my goal. And that's not an achievable goal. But in the, so in the meantime, I'm just trying to do that, accomplish that the best I can. Like, do you feel like, like, you don't watch many silent films, right? Nah, probably won't. So you you don't think you will? I don't think so. You don't think you'll watch like uh, Birth of a Nation ever? No. Nah. Like a three-hour silent film. If I have a guest who really wants to do D.W. Griffith. But so you would have to have some <laughs> other. But so you don't have inside of you the motivation to ever see Birth of a Nation. I don't think I do. No. Okay, no. and then say like I, I uh, guess if I was becoming a film professor, I would feel obligated to do it. But you know, right? So it'd have to be some outside thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, what's another thing you're just like that you? What's another sort of hole in your experience? Have you seen much Bergman? Only like two or three. Do you want to see a lot of Bergman? I kind of do. Okay, so Bergman's there. So okay, so for you, it is about things that you are personally. I remember being turned off in. by Fassbinder. Like I kind of went. I don't know if I want to see all of his movies. Okay, so so you don't think like I liked with, a couple of them that I saw, but I was like, I can't. I don't know if I could. S- so without so without outside motivation, you don't think you're going to watch more Fassbender movies? I don't think so. Okay, it's it takes so, too much out of me. I think. Sure, sure, sure. So if like for you, you are compelled by to a certain extent curiosity, but to a large extent what you find pleasurable to watch. Yeah. Okay, so, like, if you had seen two or three Bergman movies and you hated them all, that would be the end of Bergman for you. 
That's quite possible. Yeah. But you don't hate the Bergman movies you've seen, I'm Mm-mm. assuming. So you do kind of want to watch more Bergman movies. Yeah. I want to see everything. <laughs> that's, that's, that to me is... Okay, so that's my illness compared to your illness. I don't know if it's an illness. Or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but that is my condition. I mean, maybe we both have like Asperger's and that's like our, our passion. Like that's, that's what we're into. That's I, what we want to focus on. I it's think like, about... I, I am so convinced I'm on the spectrum that I'm too afraid to ever ask anyone who is capable of telling me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so scared of it. Then I'm just like, uh, I'm pretty sure I have it, and I'll leave it at that. Because I don't the end of the world it. if we do. I know, I know it's not. And there are plenty of people on the spectrum who are wonderful people who live and very intelligent, full, like you, who are very intelligent, who live full lives. Yeah, and, of course. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't I'm not intelligent, and I don't have a full life, and I might be on the spectrum, but that's that doesn't. I don't want to color everyone on the spectrum for that reason. But um, I mean, I've had existential crises watching movies where I'm like, what the fuck am I watching this movie for? I should yeah. be. Out trying to meet somebody, trying to do can something sociable. Last, can you tell me the last movie you thought oh of? Oh my god. This, this episode is so weird, by the way. I can't remember. Was it a Fassbinder movie? It might have been. <laughs> I think it was, because that was even like the point where we were sort of considering both of us calling it quits a yeah. little bit, just because that was so exhausting. Yeah. Um, and I just went, yeah, I don't even know if I want to keep doing this, because... It's it does feel more like a chore, and if like maybe because I'm such a sponge of emotion and, and like watching and I have such high empathy that watching a movie like this where it's like pummeling you yeah yeah that I can't put myself through that and it's almost the same it's equated to the epiphany I had when I was doing role playing as a therapist where I was like this is fake and I'm feeling way too much from it already yeah. imagine when I have to do this for real. So that's kind of why I went, I don't know if I want to do this. Sure. So it makes sense. Your empathy is too strong. Yeah. Which is an argument against you being too high on the spectrum there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess. I guess. But I like just the, the whole idea of like, I got to focus on this one thing and yeah. be really good at this one thing. But at the same time, like, uh-huh. I, I, I do feel at certain moments where... Yeah, maybe my film viewing is an addiction. Yeah. You know, and I think that's where that... You should read the Patton Oswalt book. You might have some of your questions answered. Yeah, maybe. Because there's a little of that brought up in that book. Um, Just like, am I doing this because I'm just trying to avoid life? Well, I mean, what, what's so good about life? <laughs> <laughs> Watching movies. That's what's great yeah, about life. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, what, what am I missing out on? Um, so, for example, when I'm at work and I'm putting stuff away, and I'm putting something away in the Criterion section, and then I look over, and one of the sleeves there is a Fassbinder movie. I have guilt inside of me for not having watched that Fassbinder movie, or having, hmm. or having been provoked by, you know, he's a very, he's a provocateur. Did the podcast create that guilt? <laughs> no, no, because I'm not on the podcast anymore. It's, yeah. I have a guilt that I, I want to be the omnivore that I see myself as. And I have a guilt for every food, uh, metaphorically, that I end up not having a taste for. Um, mm. Which is, in some respects, like Godard. Ooh, sorry. I uh, bumped the microphone there. Uh, like Godard? Okay. Like, okay. I don't like Godard. Like, I so hate every Godard movie I've ever seen, and I've put enough time into Godard that I just know I don't like Godard. Does that mean I'm not going to watch the Godard movies that I haven't seen yet? No. No, I'm going to watch them all. But I'm just not going to feel guilty Isn't anymore. Isn't that going to feel like torture? No, no, no. It's just I need to know what I'm talking about. 
or putting even that is insane because I'm not talking about it to anyone because I don't have a fucking podcast. <laughs> like I just need to know in my heart. I need to know that my brain contains the information that I want it to contain, and what I want to contain is the entirety of film history. <laughs> well, so, how, what are you gonna, how are you going to utilize that history? Is I'm the not, question. I'm not. I'm building this. I, it's, it's you could go to film meetups and talk to people for hours. No, no, because I have no. I'm, I'm not social. I, I'm antisocial. I get freaked out by that sort of thing. When I was hmm. at like Collins, I got. I just got weird. Like you know, for your for your birthday, I just got weird and I couldn't talk to anyone. I want to talk to that 18 year old. I find him fascinating. What's his name? Yeah, Ben. So I cannot call him that 18 year old. I want to talk about Ben, and I find him fascinating. But I, I was too. just too in my head, and I was too scared. And I I'm and I just know that myself. I turn into an ass, and I start getting really aggressive and I just like that's why I'm just sort of slowly closing off all the social parts of my life like I haven't I don't see any friends I don't I don't hang out with people it's not like oh I'm not on Facebook I call them on the phone it just means I'm not on Facebook so I have no idea what's going on with those people I'm just sort of slowly closing off those parts of my life because I'm just I'm not good socially so I don't even think it's I want to be fucking Mr. Big Dick at the film meetup guy like it's not that even it's just I want to know – I want to know – okay, so what I want is to watch a movie that I've never – I don't know anything about and I've read nothing about and I see it and I have a thought in my head about that movie and then I read something about that movie written by a critic I respect and they say exactly what I thought and then you feel justified in that – Yeah. In that – and not – like on a deeper level, like not just – I thought that this was well paced or this, but like something on a deeper level, this is about this, and I think that they're doing it this way, which I've never seen before. And then when you read someone say those exact things Mm -hmm. and you feel so vindicated, like, I mean, I don't necessarily have a Jesus, like, (laughs) I don't necessarily have a Jesus. Mike D'Angelo comes close. That's a fucking sick thing. That's something a sick person says. He will never appear on the podcast. No, he won't. But but I'm just saying, like, there is no one that I agree with all the time. Mike D'Angelo loves Joe versus the Volcano. Mike D'Angelo didn't like Blue Ruin. I, you know, like, there's no one I agree with all the time. But I want to feel that – I want to know that I walked away from a movie having absorbed from it things that people don't normally absorb from it. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I, I do worry, like – It's so – It works against me in, to some degree, too, with, like – with Mad Max in particular, like everybody texting me before I saw it, it's a masterpiece. It's great. Yeah, You're going to yeah. love it. Is that like a version of Inception where yeah, they've you, just implanted you, the idea in my head yeah. that it is a masterpiece, so I walk in there already expecting it? Yeah, and but, what's, but what's worse, really, somewhat, everyone telling you it's a masterpiece and then you walk out and you go, I agree, or everyone telling you it's a masterpiece and you walk out and go, now here are all the reasons it's not a masterpiece. Like – fucking me the fucking uh, contrarian like I don't think that's a you're not a contrarian you just have a different I, opinion I don't think I am either but sometimes I have thoughts in my head that that scare me and they make me think maybe I am and it's frustrating um, but I can understand somebody saying like the CGI movies, and that is like my fucking shitty. favorite movie of last year was Boyhood it's not like I only like movies that no one else likes you know like, yeah of course but it's whatever like and every now and then we have a shared moment yeah. with upstream color so I mean it's it's possible. Like, I, I mean, I guess to some degree the reason why I watch films and then listen to film podcasts is so I can have a connection with people. Uh-huh. And so I can, even though I'm not, like, talking so the with them specifically. the extracurricular is as important to you. I think so, to some degree, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I'm not going to go see every new release just because I listen to every right. film you junk you episode. Seen Jurassic World. No, I don't yeah. want to. I don't yeah. care. Even if, even if it was to join in the hatred of Jurassic yeah. World, that's not who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a huge desire for it. There are people who see every major release, even the ones that they know they'll hate, because they want to be able to hate it publicly right. and knowledgeably. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that person. Neither am I. Um, I'm like, I at this point, I'm like, you know, there's so many Hitchcock movies I still need to see. Why am I going to go see Jurassic World? I can mm-hmm. watch another Hitchcock I, I watched Rope last night, and I was like, that was have fun. Seen, have you seen Rope before? I liked it. Yeah, it was good. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. It's fun, it's, seeing, it's, it's, it's fun, fun seeing Jimmy Stewart fucking yeah. uh, tie them up. Like, mm-hmm. oh, man. Like, yeah, just slowly the rope around their necks like just starts to tighten as he figures out what's exactly. going on. Exactly. Although I thought the transition to the cuts was kind of clumsy. Like yeah, just, yeah, yeah. The camera goes everyone, into somebody's clothes. Because it was the first movie to do it, everyone talks about it like it's a yeah. formal masterpiece. But really, Rope is just a filmed play. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Which I like. Like, there's nothing... Like, uh, like Birdman is technically way more uh, interesting in the way it hides its cuts. And, like... Yeah. It, it was the same... I, yeah, me and Regina were looking at uh, a list of movies that were one take, and a lot of them aren't one take. A lot of them are just designed to look like one take, but don't even take place in. They're not in real time. They're just. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's funny what people will latch on to. It's I always think about that with uh, in terms of Night of the Living Dead, where everyone is so feels so vindicated that the George Romero horror movie has the first like black protagonist. <laughs> That they're like, this movie's about race, and it's a race movie, and it's so important, it says everything, it's the ultimate 60s movie ever, and like, they'll latch onto it, and then you watch it, and you're like, this could have been a white guy, the movie wouldn't have changed that much. Right? Yeah, Yeah, it's all about context, and what people latch onto, and it's, everybody can have a different interpretation, that's what I love about it. I think there is something in my brain that sees that happening... And resists it psychically. Um, Did that happen with the, Mad Max? Not to the. I mean, so so the weird thing. I haven't even really talked about this at length on the podcast at all, or at all about Mad Max on the podcast. But the thing I don't like about Mad Max is I think it's ugly. I, it's all shot digitally, and it has like really strong color grading. And to me, it is so obviously digital that the stunts, whether or not they're real, they might as well have been he fake. He said it wasn't filmed digitally. I. It I mean, I'm, I'm, hmm. I mean, maybe it was it. just maybe it was just color corrected digitally. I think so. I Are think it's probably it was the shot case. on celluloid. Yeah, it doesn't look like celluloid at I all. I could swear he's that's exactly what he said. At any rate, but there's like film change. Like you remember at the beginning of Mad Max where they're chasing him throughout the caves and everything, and it's all like sped up and stuff. Yeah, like and everything. Like there's that sort of thing that's all done post, and there's a lot in Mad Max that is. No, like all practical stunts, but they're composited digitally mm-hmm. and stuff like like it just it was very well, them going into the lightning storm and stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. that and also just like when the camera goes five hundred <laughs> feet across the whole length of people, you know that that was different shots edited together because I know what a digital camera looks like. There's just stuff like that that is looks like a video game, and to me, it's like well, if it's going to look like a video game, then what's the what's all the hype about practical stunts? And to me, mm-hmm. when you take that away. There's stuff that's really interesting about Mad Max, and there's stuff that's like I really appreciate the lack of bullshit in it, and like they just say Bullet Town and Gas Town. They don't give a whole info dump about what those words mean, and I like that there's strong female characters. Yeah, I like that Mad Max is like the least relatable person in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like 
there's a lot about I like about it, but in the end, the thing that everyone freaked out about was the thing that I thought wasn't very good, and therefore... Yeah, but, Patrick, the cameras were fast. I just like fast cameras, apparently. Oh, like you know? moving. Yeah. Fast, I thought you meant, like, Fast moving cameras. Mm. I thought you meant, like, the film speed was fast, and that's... Yeah, I should rewatch Crank, just to see if I still like it. I have it. You can, you can borrow it from me. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, like... Uh, what was I saying? But there is something in me that sees people parroting back things that they've heard other people saying, and then it just becomes the consensus. Like, Rope is a great example where, yeah, like, when you watched it, you were just like, yeah, those transitions, the thing that everyone talks about Rope about, mm-hmm. like, that's not actually the best thing about Rope. Those are actually kind of clunky and Yes, weird. they are. Oh, yeah. you think they are the best thing about no, Rope? No, I think they're clunky. Oh, it's clumsy. Right, yeah. Very clumsy. So... I don't know. There's something in me that like rejects that and wants. I just to. like the I like the idea of like it starts off with a murder and you just want to see how they're going to get caught. Yeah, and that's the tension as it goes yeah. along. Like how are they going to get caught? How's Jimmy Stewart going to figure this out? Yeah, it's like it's and that creates suspense. And I think that's a really cool idea for a movie. It's the uh, well, it's like the example. It's Chekhov's gun adapted by Hume Cronin of all people too, <laughs> which I thought was really fascinating. Who's Hume Cronin again? He's uh, one of the du- old dudes from Cocoon. Oh, that's right. He was married he, to Jessica Tandy. He's the actor, Hugh Cronin. Um, that's funny. Um, it's the it's Chekhov's dead body <laughs> in a trunk. What? You know the you know the dramatic idea of Chekhov's gun. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's All right. Chekhov's yeah. dead body in a trunk. <laughs> Eventually, someone's going to know that that dead body's right. in that trunk. Right. I wonder how you feel about Cocoon. Oh, I love it. Oh, I you love do? it. It's my favorite movie. No, you don't. Um, it's Ron Howard. It's <laughs> we already had a podcast about Cocoon, Jim. We did. Oh, no that's one right. My age watches Cocoon. <laughs> so you still haven't seen it? No. Okay. No one my age. <laughs> uh, one day. What? Yeah. See, that's the other thing. Like in the back of my head, I'm like, we'll have to do day. a Steve Gutenberg premium podcast. Do I think there is any part of me that's really going to like Cocoon? The answer is no. But in the back of my You've head, you've got to like Wilford Brimley. He's, he can be all right, yeah. But I don't. I don't think he's like a novelty in his own, in himself. I've never yeah. seen him actually be really good in anything. I like maybe him in, I like him in the thing, but it's not like it's a hard role to just be the guy who does the, who says those lines. I don't know. But I, 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 I go back to what you're saying. Like, is there any part of my brain that thinks I'm going to enjoy Cocoon? No. Am I going to see Cocoon? Absolutely, 100. percent Yes. Of course, I have to see Cocoon. What are you crazy? You don't have to see Cocoon. I have to see Cocoon. It's not like Godard. It's a it's a cultural touchstone. I want to be an omnivore, not just with art films, with all films. I don't know. I don't I, on a long enough timeline. I don't think I a Ron Howard movie should. I don't know. I I, you know I wouldn't make money, it at a high you priority. Know how much money Cocoon made. It's not a high priority. I still haven't seen it. But you know how much money it made. That says something about the era it was made in. Therefore, if I want to know about other films made in that era, I need to have seen Cocoon. Dude, that was a weak era. I know, but I'm just... That's what I'm saying. That's how my brain works. I would say you should see Daryl before you see Cocoon. I've seen Daryl. Oh, okay. Daryl's good. He's really good at video games. Yeah. Or Last Starfighter. Yeah. Maybe we should have done that instead of Joe vs. Volcano. I mean, I'm glad you like Joe vs. the Volcano. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to change your mind about Joe vs. No, the no, Volcano. No, 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 I know. It just didn't You're not work going to. Yeah. But I just... Maybe I just want to make you happy. <laughs> I, you know what? I think that's one of the most honest things you've said so far today. Probably. I think there's something in you that really wants to make me happy. Like, you really want my approval, and I... Not approval. I, I feel like you do. Because, uh. like, 
I feel like you get really disappointed when you recommend a movie to me and I don't like it. Like, I feel like you feel like I'm you just, did bad. <laughs> I don't know if it's all on me. It's just more of like, oh, I was hoping Patrick would, would, that would make him happy. Or that would be a pleasure. <laughs> that would be a pleasurable experience. It's like you want my approval. It's like you just don't want me to be so miserable all the time. No, it's just we're not going to always agree, and right. that's fine. So I know that we agree on point blank. Yeah, of course, because it's amazing. It's fucking amazing. What's funny is what's funny is the things I saw. I saw Payback before Point Blank without realizing that Payback. Yeah. Was a remake. Oh, of that Point happens. Blank. I saw The Bachelor before I saw Seven Chances, so ah! I think that's worse. Oh my! <laughs> yeah. Um, what's funny is you. You know, one of the things you loved about Point Blank is that there's no bullshit. Mm-hmm. The bullshit is my favorite part of Point Blank. It's the weird, surreal stuff. Like it's not a straightforward movie, really. No. Because the implication at the end is that maybe none of that actually happened. Maybe it was all in his head, like a revenge fantasy as he was dying in that cell. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Huh. Here's what I want you to do. That's an interesting thought. Here's what I want you to do. One of the best commentaries ever. John Borman, director of Point Blank. Steven Soderbergh, director of The Limey. They do a commentary together on the Point Blank Blank DVD. Bill Ackerman told me I have to hear it. It's very good. It's great. It's great because they mostly talk about different lenses and cameras. <laughs> like, yeah. they, they obsess on a technical level that's really appealing to me. So is it like... Is it is it, is, it, is Lee Marvin essentially like a ghost at the end? No, it or is it is not an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, but it is a similar concept, which is he has this revenge fantasy, but even in his fantasy, things don't quite go right, and that's when he accepts his death, and that's how you end up back in. Huh. Like he in his head in his last moment because there's actually. Like, remember when he goes and his wife is there and then she's not there and then there are things just vanishing from the room and, like, the, the bedspread is gone and there's and, – and then it's, like, it's implied that he killed her but it's also implied that she took a bunch of sleeping pills. Like, there's all this weird um, – uh, uh, it's not – there's no symmetry there between the, the accounts of what happened and it's – and that's sort of the clues – I was wondering why he was so unresponsive to getting slapped so much. I was like, what? Dude, how could you not respond to that? That's the best. That's one of my favorite parts of that movie. Oh, yeah. That, that's, is, that's in the clip party. That's in the next clip party. And it's also <laughs> when, she, when, when she is like... Um, the, the way they did this is actually Lee Marvin was like, actually, what if I took out all my dialogue here and only we kept her dialogue? And, the, and John Borman's like, all right. Because Lee Marvin was the co-writer of that movie. And so that man that she's like... The money, it comes once a week. I didn't know, like, instead of having her interior, instead of having him interrogate her, she just, he just stands there, he just sits there silently on the couch and then she mm. just says everything. Right. Like, it's a very dreamlike kind of movie. Like, the thing I really responded to it is how weird and dreamlike it is. Um, That's, I was totally, I was not prepared for that. Yeah. Especially because I'm like, oh. Payback. That's a total Mel Gibson revenge fantasy. Yeah, and I yeah. love revenge. I thought movies. it was gonna be like a hard nosed, kind of stripped down thriller, yeah. like Bullet or something. And um, spoiler alert: coming up soon this later this summer, I've uh, decided to finally do Steven Soderbergh Part Two. Yeah. So I wanted to finally see what was the biggest, you know, the big inspiration for the Limey. And 
I was like, oh my god, the limey doesn't seem as good now because no. I've seen Point Blank. I, I, but I, I'm, I, I, I'm going to still see it again. Have you, you've listened to the commentary track on the limey DVD, right? Mm-hmm. You gave me the limey DVD, actually. I think mm-hmm. I have it because you gave it to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I can give it back if you want. It was funny. Like I kind of liked the limey, but then when I watched it with the commentary track... And it's the director and the screenwriter arguing about the director's yeah, approach. Yeah, I know. This was interesting. I was kind of agreeing with the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. a funny. It was, it was. It was a funny experience, and I, I love Soderbergh for that for being putting himself out there. Another that director way. that's got a lot of balls on him. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. This is the weirdest episode, maybe we've ever done. It should be the last thing we ever do together. <laughs> I mean, not, wow. Not ever. Wow. Okay. I'm just gonna drop the mic. So, Cameron Crowe. Say anything is good. All right. And I will not go see Aloha. Just in case people are wondering. No whitewashing. I'm not going to rewatch Devil's Rejects over and over again. Why should you? But, but, my friend... I feel so guilty for not liking it, though. Oh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. This is... See this I got. I got it in my hard... I, I, I got it in my hard drive. Okay, tell them what I'm pointing at. Halloween Disc 2, Rob Zombie's remake. Great documentary, I know. It's fucking weird, is what it is. It's, weird? It's weird because it is so in-depth, and there is no... There's... There's like maybe five minutes of people like being interviewed and talking to the camera and the whole thing. Hmm. It's weird. It's great. It is. If you ever like wanted to feel the sensation of working on a film, like a major studio film, like you can just watch that and just veg out and just like have a fantasy. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, his, his documentary about the making of Devil's Rejects is pretty good too, but that's even better. Okay. That's even more. It's even longer and more detail oriented. Hmm. I don't know if I can spend that much time with him. Are you excited about the Groucho? No! I saw that and I just wanted to die. Oh, Jim, you can't, you can't help. <laughs> There's some things that are so deep in you that you just have to screen them the second they come to your brain. They completely bypass any filter you have. Yeah. It is like a version of Tourette's. I just say Rob Zombie Groucho biopic, and then there's just like this panic response in your body, and your just mouth just shouts no. I'm just hoping it's like his hockey movie just doesn't happen. Yeah. Because that, that was announced. It never happened. Thank God. Tyrannosaurus Rex or something. Oh. He was making some post-apocalyptic movie that never happened. <sighs> he crowdsourced a, uh, like a horror movie, like a battle royale kind of horror movie, and that's uh. happening. Huh. Hmm. You can spend six hundred fifty dollars, and he'll follow you on Twitter. Oh God, no! He doesn't want to follow me. It's just me bad mouthing him all the time. So you ever are going to rewatch House of the Devil anytime? Um, and you know what would make me rewatch House of the Devil is if you begged me, or <laughs> <laughs> or if there was something that Ty West did. That made me really reconsider him as a filmmaker. But right now, I'm kind of, I kind of know what he is. Maybe you should see the Sacrament since it's very different from other Ty West movies. It's Ty West found footage. It. I don't believe it. I didn't like it. I don't believe it's different. Some people say it is. I know, I know, but I just, you know what I mean. You know, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't buy what other people say. I don't believe that it's different. 
there's no way. This guy, this guy makes one movie, and he has that movie so deep in his bones that it's the only thing he can possibly do, even when he's doing a fucking Cabin Fever sequel. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that was forgettable. Except for a penis spewing blood. Right, except for all the parts that were, it was taken away from him. <laughs> right. Um, any other Jim and Patrick touchstones? Somewhere. Yeah. Piano. Piano, the, the Jane Campion episode, if you recall, I spent the entire time just lying on your bedroom floor moaning. That's right. Because I, I was so upset. Like, I was, it was that was my but At least you liked guilt. in the cut, you liked that. Yeah, but that's the one no one likes. Like, again, I, I, was so, I had so much guilt because I didn't like Sweetie. I didn't like um, Piano. There was that other one that's the biopic of the poet with the terrible teeth. Bright Star? Maybe. Or... Bright Star, I think, is about the other poet. <laughs> Two bio, poet biopics. Oh, not An Angel at My Table? Yeah, Angel at My Table. That's the one I didn't like. I couldn't finish that one. Hmm. Yeah. I you would like Top of the Lake. That's the I best. saw the first episode. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. There's a thing about... There's a thing about British crime shows that mix the mundane with everything has to be the most violent, most terrible possible murder ever. Isn't it New ever. Zealand or Australian, though? Yeah, but it's, it was for the BBC. Okay. So, British production. I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Unless it was originally... I'm assuming it was a British production. Um, but yeah, there's something about those that... I don't know. Maybe I'll watch Top of the Lake. It, it seemed It seemed all right. And I will be curious to hear your take since you and I are both one of some of the, some of the very few fans of Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be interested to see what you think of Sense Eight because I don't I, think I'm going to watch. It. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. I don't think I would like Cloud Atlas if I had to dedicate eight hours to it or however ten long. hours. I don't think I would like Cloud Atlas if it was ten hours long. I don't think I'm going to watch Sense Eight, but I kind of grew to like it more as it went along because you're spending more time with these people. Of, yeah, but I don't have that kind of patience for TV that you do. Yeah, I guess I don't watch any TV. Unless that sort of feels someone like someone begs me to. Yeah, that sort of feels like a compulsion sometimes. Like, I have to yeah. finish the season, yeah, even though yeah. I don't like it that much. Well, that was. I mean, I was happy I finished the first season of Hannibal, but I if I was on my own, like watch the first three episodes of Hannibal, that would have been it because those first three episodes are terrible. I wouldn't say they're terrible, but they're, they're not so as good as- television. They're so TV. They're so nonsensical. Gets, that show is gets such so nonsense. Much better. I know, I know, but that's w- only because you told me to watch it, and that season two is better than season one. I finished the season, but I had to make myself to do it. Whereas I don't know, like Veep, I always get depressed once I finish watching a season of Veep because it's the best. But what's interesting is that the beginning of season three of Hannibal feels like only God forgives, so you could totally wind up hating it. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's just so... It's so visual, is it and la- there's is hardly it that any language? dialogue. Yeah. Really? And there's hardly any dialogue, and a lot of it's just bloody slow Tell motion. Tell me that you understand that Hannibal is completely ridiculous. I do, okay. but I'm also interested in the psychology do- and the Tell duality. Tell me you of- understand that the psychology is ridiculous as well. Yeah. Like, that that isn't real psychology. Like, it's completely nonsensical. Like, that it it has... Like, that it resembles things that are real, but it is absolutely... I mean, the thing about Hannibal that is the TV thing Mm -hmm. is that no one talks like a human being and everyone just gives the... talks the information that they need to give for the scene to move forward. No one ever talks as if they're responding to what the other person said. Everyone is just like... Like, those scenes between Hannibal and Will are the most ridiculous things ever, where it's just like, where it's just like, 
a dream is just an alternate world. Well, maybe alternate worlds have other rulers. Well, maybe the ruler of this murderer is that he loves to make people's vocal cords into fucking guitar strings. Like, it's the, it's the, like, they don't talk like human beings talking about a thing. They are just saying things. Which I don't mind. I know you don't mind. I know you like the show. I, I, I'm even, saying, I even like, I want you to recognize so why I like Hal, 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 Hal Hartley movies. Yeah, that's true. Because they don't talk like real humans. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess Every that now and then I like the me. complete opposite of real humans interacting. Like just a, a hyper stylized yeah. world where people are very different than they are in the real world. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. Sometimes it's just as interesting as, you know, something, well, uh, not upstream color, that's a bad example. <laughs> but something where. Upstream it's, color is very naturalistic. In terms of how people talk to each other and interact? Yeah. yeah, okay, I guess. I mean, the way the story is told is not that way because. The way most movies are told is this scene leads to this scene leads to this scene, and in upstream color, there's a lot of empty spaces that you sort of have to work to fill in the blanks yourself. Right. But the way in the scenes people talk, very realistic. That is a very naturalistic movie. Okay. I mean, it's sci-fi. It's sci-fi. It doesn't take place in the real world. It takes place in this other world where someone has this, you know, this parasite that does these, you know. But the actual way scenes proceed inside of it is this is a human being talking to another human being. Mm-hmm. And that, I need some sort of grounding. Like, Solaris didn't really do it for me. Um, you should try the Soderbergh version of it. Yeah? Is that more it's naturalistic? T- it's tighter and it's it's more naturalistic, I think. Yeah. Probably because Clooney can ground it. And also probably because like, Hollywood would never produce yeah. the, the Tarkovsky I mean, it's, Solaris. It's still weird. And yeah. it's, you know, it's still got that Tarkovsky flavor, but mm-hmm. it's a little more streamlined, a little more digestible. I'm trying to think of Of course movies. I never finished Tarkovsky's. I'm trying to think of movies that aren't naturalistic that I like. Like like again, like Cloud Atlas, things are connected in very vague ways, but scene to scene things like make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't I mean, they they're about as naturalistic as The Matrix is, which is to say Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Hollywood big sci-fi movie naturalistic, not I not like that, I like that the Wachowskis are these auteurs in a way like they just they they have like what cloud atlas is is really what their show is like just the same interactions the same people scene to scene all these people transition the same world right yeah in different parts of the world it's still really interesting i'm telling you i have so little patience for tv i don't watch any shows like transgender characters show shows Transgender character. So that doesn't mean it's good or bad. That's I know. Just, I just think it's a really like, bold move. Yeah, there. I wouldn't say that. Eh. Oh yeah, after transparent wins Emmys, uh, okay. and then a show comes out with a transgender character that's very bold. Touche, Patrick. Like maybe if it was five years ago, okay, it's very, very, very bold move. But it's like, oh, you mean this, this transgender uh, director made a film with a transgender character in it? That's very bold. I wouldn't say that. Eh. But like. Like, True Detective. People shit themselves over that. They went nuts. It was fine. I did it first, and now I'm like, yeah. That was fine. It was. Like, it's like a B-plus in my mind now, as opposed to, like, the A I thought it, it was. It's still TV. Like, there's TV is not good. <laughs> that, uh, that's, that's probably the most elitist thing inside of me. Is Other than comedy, I don't think TV is very good. I mean, obviously, The Wire, and the wire transcends that. Um, now that that's out on Blu-ray, I'm finally going to watch oh, it. Oh, don't, though. Because the, Blu-ray, the Blu-rays are cropped. 
Wait, you didn't what? hear about this? Oh no! The HD the HD revisions of the wire because the wire was shot full frame oh. when it first started, and they made a decision to keep making it full frame. And now they went back to the original like tape, and they just all this extra information is in the frame that they never intended. Like there's oh that's dumb yeah so like the HD version of the wire is not the way it was oh, on fuck. on TV you got to get the DVDs okay. Okay, um, I will. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's one of those things. It's like if if X Files ever comes to Blu-ray, that's going to be radically different because X Files was shot on films, so they could remaster it. But X Files was also like had a lot of digital effects that weren't yeah that were done digitally, and those would just look ridiculous if you up if you did everything in HD and then you had all these like standard definition effects. So what are you looking forward to, Patrick? And as we wrap things up here. Are you looking forward to, like, Twin Peaks coming back and X-Files no. coming back? No. Okay. They're not going to be good. We can look forward to the new Tarantino movie. That's for sure. 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 Um, anything else? I don't read, I That's don't read true. movie news. That's true. So I know about it once I start seeing reviews for it um, on Letterboxd and stuff, and then when it starts coming to the music box. Right. Um, that Tribe movie you sent me a trailer to, that seemed pretty cool. Yeah. Have you seen Leviathan yet? Love to get you. <laughs> so too many Leviathan movies. The the, the on a slow no. boat to okay. China. That'll give me something to do tonight. All yeah, to myself. Oh yeah, that's right. Tell Amanda I said hi. Hello. I, I certainly will. She's moving. Get you and keep you in my arms evermore. Leave. All your lovers are weeping on a faraway shore, way out on the briny, with the moon big and shiny. I like coals. A minty flavor. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. Watching movies, that's what's great yeah, about life. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, what, what am I missing out on? 